Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the second episode of the Future Projection Podcast. I'm Carlos Galazzo, joined, as always, by Ben Badler. Ben, how's it going, man? It's going great. It's going great. Our international prospect board drops today. It's been super, super busy, uh, but it's, uh, it's been a good day. How about you, Carlos? Yeah, we're, we're in the thick of things on the draft side. We had, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night, and Tuesdays is kind of when we drop the weekly draft stock watch, so that is chock full of notes and nuggets on players every week, um, but it really feels like we're kind of in the thick of things in terms of draft with players moving up and down boards, really coming out and impressing uh, some play, players maybe going in the opposite direction, but um, now things are moving. We've got stuff going on the pro side. Spring training games are now being televised. People are being able to put eyes on big league players, on minor league prospects, the draft guys, and then obviously it's fun anytime you have any big international content on the website for for the players who are maybe in the the furthest away wave, but they're coming. Um, but no, I'm really excited for the second episode of this podcast. We got a lot of really good feedback from the first episode, and we really just wanted to thank you all for kind of how you've welcomed the podcast into the into the world. We appreciate all the people who take the time to review the podcast and give us some feedback. Apparently, I was under the impression that I say like a lot as a filler word because we got some feedback that we say like a lot. So apologies for that. But but I threw that to you, Ben, and you think it's you think it's you. No, I think uh, I think that's me. I think uh, I think just I don't know if it's just anxiety or being at home for a year of just <laughs> being stuck here and then picking up different uh, um, things like that. But it's uh, we'll try to kill it. <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're in spring training uh, form as well. We're a little rusty. Got to work out the kinks. But no, I, I thought it was a good one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was impossible for it to be you because as we discussed on the last episode, you're significantly older than me, and the oh, wow. the, the like filler seems to, oh, be, wow. to be a just, young person thing. <laughs> just just slide that one in there. But <laughs> but no, we uh, no, I definitely echo what Carlos said. We just had the idea just the way we said on the last podcast of we're always we're just we're here we're always talking baseball and we just need to hit record on on some of these conversations mm-hmm. so it's super cool to hear the feedback from you know different people in front offices and scouts across the country or outside the country and and all you guys who are um, you know who dropped really kind words for us on on twitter and and instagram and left really nice uh reviews for us so we're gonna uh, try to keep the magic going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was really excited too that most people seem to enjoy the length of it, which typically when you're talking for two plus hours, maybe people can get a little sick of you. But um, I know there are plenty of scouts who have a lot of long car rides and, and travel that, that maybe that's their preferred length. But it is nice to know that uh, at least those of you who have listened have enjoyed it so far. And it, it really gives me a lot of excitement to to keep this thing going. I've, I've got a lot of passion for it. And I'm excited to yeah, well, when you it. say people get sick of you, I'll, I'll just assume you mean the general you and not me. 
<laughs> exactly. It was a general general sense mm-hmm. of it, not mm-hmm. not directed at you, Ben. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you mentioned the um, you mentioned the international board um, that dropped today on the website for subscribers. So if you have not checked that out, you definitely should go check it out. Ben is as we talked about on last episode, uh, the man when it comes to international coverage. Um, but be- before we get into the board, why don't you address what what this is and isn't in terms of what we're trying to do? with lining up the players? Because apparently people do not like to read intros for draft lists or draft rankings or rankings of prospects. Yeah, so it's so we're, we're basically just lining up the players for, I guess, what's technically the 2021 class. It's probably getting, I think, almost certainly getting moved to January 15th, 2022. So... You know that official decision has not been made yet, but uh, these you know these players and everybody still refers to them as the 2021 class, same as the same way that January 15th players who signed this year still get referred to as the 2020 class. MLB, this is not a criticism of them, but they could not have moved the signing date in a more <laughs> frustrating way as far as identifying which class is uh, is which, but. <clears throat> Yeah, these look. I mean, the reality is, is these players have had uh, commitments or, or agreements. You know, obviously unofficial agreements lined up multiple years in advance of of their actual signing date. So the reality is, is these players have not been seen widely in any kind of competitive scouting environment for the most part for two plus years in in some cases, and you know, especially if we're gonna have the signing period delayed and oh by the way we're also in a pandemic I don't think anybody forgot that but uh, there was also a six-month ban on on teams scouting or seeing any players in person internationally in 2020 so So you're saying uh, your job is pretty easy it sounds yeah no it's super super easy Uh, yeah international scouting in general is just really (laughs) easy trying to predict the future of 16 or 15 or even you know 14 year old Mm-hmm. uh players in in latin america what's what what could be easier than <laughs> what could be easier than that right yeah no, um, no. yeah and then then also you're trying to beat 29 other clubs if, if you're down there <laughs> who are all uh i would say fiercely very intensely competitive i think international scouting the free agent aspect of it uh draws very very competitive people into that uh, that environment especially the the grassroots scouting element of it mm-hmm. but yeah I, I just felt like you know i'll probably go into this more maybe on a another podcast maybe save it for next time but um you know i've just felt like the most honest and fair thing to do for both for our, our readers and and the players involved and and the clubs too is to just line these players up based on you know we know roughly or have a pretty good idea of roughly what these players are, are going to sign for. So we can, you know, give you a, a snapshot report of, of who these guys are, right? Like I know Lazaro Monte is a Cuban outfielder, maybe first baseman who's, you know, we, we posted a video uh, or I think the baseball America account posted a video on Twitter of him. I think it's on Instagram too, on the BA account where you can see, Oh yeah, this dude is a <laughs> big physical uh you know, Jordan Alvarez looking yeah, left-handed. He's listed at six foot four, two hundred and ten pounds, and he's how old right now? I 
think, yeah, he might be 16 now. I mean, that's probably in the video he was 15 or yeah, he's a mad child. So yeah. you know, I, I, we can write a pretty good report on him and, and a lot of the other players in the class. You can just give you an outline of what mm-hmm. types of, of players these guys are, but the board itself is sort of just, it's just lined up based on the, the expected bonus amounts as opposed to the traditional talent rankings that mm-hmm. we've, you know, normally does. It's the same thing we did last year. So maybe, yeah. Uh, might, well, might do not assume, for... do not assume that people who saw the board last year read the intro either. So I think my, my word of caution is just, if you go to a, a list of players, there is useful information in the intro before the list actually starts. I know. Carlos is going to make this a podcast about how everyone needs to read the intros <laughs> that we, that we write. Cause no, everyone I feel just like right by them. <laughs> there are some people surely who, who look at this list though and think it's a talent ranking. And if you come into it thinking that you're, you're taking away the wrong information. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe I just need to stop writing intros since we should just give the readers what they want. No intro straight to the <laughs> list, you know, no appetizer, just dive straight into the meat and potatoes. But, um, I do think though, I do think this could be, this could be the last year where, where we actually have international free agency itself. Mm-hmm. So you mean this cl- this signing class or this, so what would it be the 2021s who are coming? Yeah, this 2021 signing class, I think potentially, mm-hmm. I think either this upcoming signing class or, or potentially the one after that, mm-hmm. we could see an international draft. Okay, we've, we've heard rumblings of this for a while. I'm not sure how, how public those have been prior to this. I know people think about it, but w- what leads you to, to think that the inter- international draft is coming? I've talked with scouts about this on the amateur side who think that's kind of where everything's heading, but what's kind of, um, I guess the environment now, why is it heading in that direction? What are the pros and cons? What are your just general thoughts on the international draft as a whole? So it, you know, we're coming up at the end of, uh, at the end of the CBA, which is going to be a nightmare. Yes. I was going to say disaster. I think nightmare is probably going to be a, better word i'm sure it's all gonna play out in public and everybody's just gonna be so sick of it by (laughs) at by uh you know at some point this year but yeah the cba pretty much expires after this season uh mlb can't just come in and unilaterally implement international draft it has to be collectively bargained with the union which and and an international draft is something that the owners have wanted for, I mean, literally two decades. I was in, I, mean, I, I remember, so our, our headquarters at BA is, is down in, in Durham, North Carolina. I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm up in Boston right now, but one of my favorite things about being in the office, well, aside from, you know, seeing the rest of you guys, but. It's, Come on, is, Ben, don't just throw us under the bus. You don't even want to <laughs> hang out with us. What the heck? is uh no comment is is seeing i actually get more work done working from from home than working in the office because we would just have so many side conversations yeah i think since (laughs) since the pandemic started and i was going to go remote prior to the pandemic uh, i'm in norfolk virginia now um but yeah i've noticed the same thing i think it is a lot easier to actually produce work and to be productive uh, but there is something about just being able to walk into jj's office and go down 
a rabbit hole that that he's invested in at that time or just to hear the general buzz because like I feel like normal offices probably have chatter that's fun to take part in but ours is literally baseball all the time so it's even more fun but, yeah it's fun but then after hearing JJ talk about which side of the rubber a pitcher is on for like 30 minutes hey like, he might right, be I... listening to this podcast Ben he's going to give you a pay decrease or something if we keep criticizing him oh no I'm I'm letting him know I'm calling him out <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's yeah, it's it's fun conversations, but uh, yeah. sometimes it's like all right, I gotta I gotta get back. To work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some, Absolutely, some work here, but you know we have the archives going back years and years through all the old editions of BA, and I love going back and reading old scouting reports, things like what we wrote about, or just just how we ranked players in the year you know 2002 or 1996 and just what just even just what a scouting report looked like in the sometimes you know the pre-internet era or the very infancy of of having the internet I I can't even imagine doing this prior to cell phones (laughs) and uh and the internet just the work that uh alan simpson and uh and and some of the early folks at BA did it yeah. kind of blows my mind how they were able to it's mind-boggling it to me together but <laughs> um i remember going through an issue i think it was in 1999 and the headline was something like uh, an international draft is inevitable is inevitable uh basically mlb was saying an international draft is coming this was in 1999 so this kind of talk has been going on for for a long time. And I've been at BA since 2007, and there's always been talk about it, but I never felt like it was really coming close until mm-hmm. the last CBA when I, I think MLB right up until the end, and, and I started writing about it more, and I don't think they were super thrilled about that. I think they thought they were just going to push an international draft through and it just, when it got out, it just led to this explosion of pushback against MLB for, you know, from, from a lot of different uh, people and, and they didn't end up implementing international draft, but they did end up implementing this new system where before you could, you know, you had bonus pools but remember, you had teams were just blowing past their bonus pools because it wasn't a hard cap. Yep. And teams realized, oh, the Padres are like, well, we can just drop like, I don't know, $45 million in signing bonuses on players and pay another 45 or so million dollars in penalties. So you had more than half the league, I think, was just blowing past their bonus pool uh, in, you know, in, in a given year. And the penalty for it was you can't sign a player for more than $300,000 for two years. And I'm sure when MLB came up with that rule, they thought, oh, $300,000, that's a pretty low limit. No, mm-hmm. you, you can get some pretty good players for less than $300,000. Who are some notable players? Are there any players who come to mind who are prominent now that signed for less than that? Because I know there are a good amount. I, yeah, I don't I'd, have say, the... I'd say Ronald Acuna turned out pretty decent. He was uh, 100K, right? Yeah, 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 he's good. I mean, <laughs> I would say this: the success rate and the track record of the, the very top bonus guys now is a lot better 
than it used to be. I think just the process of scouting these players now is is a lot more thorough and, and comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's at the same time it's shifted so much younger, which which makes it more challenging. But um, I, I think teams have generally done a, a much better job devoting resources and, and really identifying who the who the top players are. But yeah, and I think Ozzy Albies was three. Three fifty, I, I want to say, so not a not a huge bonus guy, but pitchers especially. I mean, you can get uh, Sixto Sanchez is our top pitching prospect in our our top one hundred. He signed for thirty five thousand dollars. You know, conversion guy. I, you find pitchers like that all the time. In mm-hmm. well, not like Sixto Sanchez. <laughs> Sixtos <laughs> but, aren't falling off trees. Yeah, but uh, y- y- you can find a lot of really good arms, especially for for lower prices. So MLB wanted to they want to cost containment they want to contain how much money that they're spending on amateur players uh you know which which they have done in the draft and they wanted to to do it internationally so so they were able to get the instead of being able to implement a an international draft they put in they were able to get the union somehow to to agree to this hard cap system so with this hard cap system uh that's <laughs> it's ended teams ability to uh you know to freely or or m- much more freely spent <laughs> than um you know compared to what they what they used to be able to do and now the owners still want to draft so i actually reported so back in july 2019 mlb they had a meeting the people in the commissioner's office, they met with a bunch of international club folks at a meeting in Florida. I think it was in Miami. Uh, they said, look, uh, our owners want an international draft. They want it, you know, they, they want it as soon as possible. They're going to have a, uh, a midterm bargaining session, which, you know, no, I don't think nothing really ever ended up coming to fruition from that. But in they the owners still want an international draft, and whereas last time you had a lot of pushback from both the 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 trainers, the agents who who represent the international players, and MLBs like the club's own club personnel who mm-hmm. actually work on the grounds in Latin America and are involved in the day-to-day process of of identifying and and scouting and signing these players they they really pushed back last time too they they were pretty upset with MLB for for a variety of reasons Mm -hmm. now I don't I don't think there's going to be that same pushback now I think a lot more people are are receptive to international draft compared to what it was before that is the most fascinating part for me because I think just kind of looking at it without a ton of like in-depth knowledge like you have, I think most people would be opposed to a draft because it's a very easy way to implement some cost control and, and suppress the amount of money that players are getting. So it makes sense previously that all those parties would be against it. And I can see how people who are kind of hands-on on international scouting, you probably feel like you can make a lot more difference in the international market with how it works as opposed to a draft where, Hey, a player in your area in the amateur side might not be 
on the board or available when it's your turn to pick. You could spend a year covering players and never really have a chance to make an impact because the board just didn't fall your way. Your players got taken by other teams in previous rounds or when your players were on the board, your team was targeting uh, a different demographic or a different type of player was higher on the board. Uh, so that all makes sense. But w what's the big shift in opposing the draft? And now it seems like most people are at least more uh, open to the idea. Is that a fair way of framing it? Yeah, I think both on the international scouting side and on the trainer side as well, which, you know, I, I should preface this by saying at the end of the day, their opinions kind of matter, but not really, right? <laughs> at the end of the day, the, the people who are sitting down at the bargaining table are the MLB PA and the MLB owners. So, <laughs> you know, what, what the international scouting community wants or what the, uh, and, and that's obviously, it's a diverse group of people with a lot of different opinions. I don't want to just lump everybody in, but I mm -hmm. can definitely tell the consensus is, has shifted. Uh, and, and I would say the same thing with the trainers throughout Latin America who are, are developing and, and representing these players. There, there's definitely been a, a big shift where, the, the clubs are saying, yeah, look, like you said, they love the freedom of being able to go out 365 days a year and sign a player or, or agree to sign a player. The, that competitiveness, <laughs> these, these, these international scouts are, can be fiercely competitive, and, and that really, I think, draws a lot of them to international scouting to go out and and find players and be able to sign them every day be able to beat 29 other teams to the player like you said it's not uh oh we really like uh, uh robert hassel in the draft but oh we picked 20th so whoever's available at 20 we can take uh we can't trade you know the, we really can't trade those draft picks so there's very little limitation there so we take whoever we take at 20 and then we sit and we wait until yeah. whoever's available at our next pick. We don't have freedom to go out and be, you know, to beat other clubs to, to a player. Now that competitive aspect has also driven this international scouting process younger and younger. I mean, when I started doing this, you, you might have in the early years, Back at uh, maybe 20, 2008, 9, 2010, you might hear about a player who had an agreement maybe a few months before July 2nd. At some point, maybe around 2015, it, it shifted where uh, you started hearing about players who were making commitments the year before they were eligible to sign. I've been writing about it since then, so I've been writing about this for what six seven years yeah you love to now date yourself on the podcast ben i'm sorry but you bring it upon yourself <laughs> <laughs> so it's and it, it's really accelerated over over the last i would say maybe two or three years where you go to a showcase and it's a bunch of players who are 14 13 years old and, and the scouts are are saying look this is not this is not good for us. We, we shouldn't be 
making decisions on on players who are are this young and then the trainers are on the other side saying yeah we you know we are a lot of them i should say are saying yeah we this is too we have to get these players ready too young this is not good for us and then they they you know the teams generally start or stop focusing on uh, on the older players we have in our program we have to start developing you know even younger players and, and bringing in more players into our our program so i think there's a lot more openness now from um, i would say from those two constituencies to to have an international draft mm-hmm. but ultimately what matters is the owners and the mlbpa and i think the owners still very much want an international draft and i don't see the mlbpa putting up any kind of a fight other than posturing and using the international amateur players as as leverage in a negotiation to try to get something in return for the players on 40-man rosters and those desires are quite (laughs) quite considerable as uh as it's, it's played out publicly. We've talked. I think there's a podcast, the Baseball America podcast, where JJ, Kyle, and myself were talking about the CBA prior to last season. It really does seem like the union has kind of given up a lot of things on the amateur side. Just players who are not current MLBPA, they're not represented by the MLBPA, but they're going to be represented in the future. It seems like they're very short-sighted in, in what they've given up for their future members. And really, I feel like it's tough, too, because on the MLB side, it's kind of one unified voice, whereas in the MLBPA, you have a lot of different voices that are probably prioritizing different things. You have veteran players, you have younger players who are are probably worried about significantly different things. And I feel like it's a lot tougher for them to kind of have one unified voice to fight for something that they want. And as we've seen the last few years, really, the union doesn't seem to emphasize valuing the the rights of these amateur players and then these international players. So I'm curious to see what happens. Hopefully it can turn into a system that's beneficial for everybody, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I think to be clear, it's, it's not that the MLBPA has anything in particular against international players. It's not anything from the Mm -hmm. Dominican Republic or Venezuela. It's if you're not on a 40 man roster, yeah, the MLBPA is not looking out for your interests. So, and that's true yeah. with minor league players too, and we've seen that play out in the past. A hundred percent. Yeah, if you're a minor league player and you're not on a forty man roster and you're making nine thousand dollars a year, <laughs> that's good luck. The MLBPA is is not really out there fighting for your interest. If you're a college player, if you're a high school player, you, we we've seen in the draft teams used to be able to spend. I mean, first there used to not even be a draft, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And then teams used to be able to spend whatever they want in the draft. There would be these recommended slot values. And if an owner was going to go over it for a player, they would get calls and get a, get a shakedown maybe from the commissioner's office. But there wasn't really any real teeth behind it. If, if there was a guy in the eighth round who was there and you say, you know, let's take a chance on, on that guy and yeah, we'll pay him $2 million. You could do it. There was no bonus pools there. But the MLBPA allowed MLB to put in these bonus pools that have essentially functioned as a, a hard cap for, for the draft picks. So it's international players, it's 
amateur players in, in the United States. It's minor league players. Anybody who is not on the 40-man roster, who is not a current union member, is a bargaining chip for, for the yep. MLBPA. And, and the, owners, the owners know that and are going to, going to use that to their advantage in, in negotiations. 100%. So, so have you heard at this point any ideas for what an international draft would look like? Do you have any ideas for, for what would make it effective? What are your thoughts on just what it could potentially turn into? So it's, I think a lot of the conversation, at least to my knowledge, has been tabled to a certain degree since the pandemic hit. Obviously, a lot more pressing issues on, on the table for both sides to to work through but when i was reporting this in in 2019 what i had heard i I think mlb is probably flexible on like the number of rounds that would be in the draft i think their main focus is probably all right well let's let's have a draft and let's make sure we have an ability to understand what our or control and contain what our aggregate spending amount is going to be and we can there they can kind of maneuver the 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 pick values and maneuver what say the the maximum bonus amount would be for a non-drafted free agent based on on the number of rounds so i, I think that's flexible i don't know a 20 round draft concept was thrown out at at one point but I think the number of rounds would be flexible. I do think that I do think we'll see a a few things that would be different than the draft and the way it works in, in the, in the States. One of which would be, I think there would be hard slot values. Oh, wow. Love that. I actually love that idea. So, yeah. So basically what that means would be that I'm, I'm making up the, the numbers just to illustrate, but all right, the first overall pick in the draft, the, the pick value there is $6 million. The second pick in the draft, $5 million. So if you're the Orioles and you have the second overall pick in the international draft and the slot value is $5 million, it's not, all right, we're going to call around a bunch of different agents like we do in the draft mm-hmm. and try to get somebody to take in, under slot deal so we can spread our money around somewhere to other players later in the draft. It's now, if you take this guy here, you're paying him this amount of money. Yep. So there, I like this so much more for a number of reasons, but one of the most obvious is that you then get to see kind of how the industry very specifically sees the talent line itself up and the way that the MLB draft works right now, because you can move around money and because you can underslot deals, you could overslot deals and maneuver money to later picks. You really, you have a, a general sense and you can basically just line it up based on the bonus amounts. Like for instance, Austin Martin slipped to the number five pick, but he still got paid more than the three guys in front of him outside of Spencer Torkelson, who was the first pick. So I really love that idea because then you'd see very clearly how, major league clubs assessed the value of a given class. And I think that is more, I think it is more accessible for fans who are maybe not as diehard to understand the draft. I think there are always going to be complications with that for baseball, just because of the developmental timeline. It's not the NFL or the NBA where 
your first round draft pick or really all your draft picks are going to see them next year on the NFL or the NBA team. Uh, but I like, I think it's simplified and I like that it makes teams basically line them up and say, who are the best players in this class? I know that maybe from the team side and certainly from the player representative side, the lack of flexibility that gives you to maybe wheel and deal is, is not something they want to see, but from, someone who covers a draft and from a fan's perspective, I think those are positives. Do you- yeah. So the, the flexibility side is interesting because you're right. Some of the teams, some of the club person, like the international club personnel, I don't think would, would want that. Uh, and I'll get to that a little bit more in a, in a moment, but for the players themselves, what, what I think people misunderstand is that, the, the players themselves and, and, and the trainers who, you know, the agents who, who represent them, a lot of them would, would be in support of having a hard slot value. And, and the reason why is because otherwise these players would have very, very little leverage in a negotiation mm-hmm. because what's going to happen is the Oakland A's are going to take a player with the 10th overall pick and the pick value is going to be, let's say, I don't know, $2 million, right? The owner of the Oakland A's is going to say, why why, why are we paying this guy, this kid from the Dominican Republic, $2 million? This guy doesn't even want to pay his own minor league players the was a couple hundred bucks or whatever was this uh this year during during the pandemic i mean the the owners are not going to want to pay a dime more to these players than they have to in a negotiation so the owner is going to say why why are we paying this guy two million dollars why don't we offer him eight hundred thousand dollars or or even less than that and what is what is this kid going to do is he going to go back into the draft next year and and sit around and and wait for another year. No, he's probably not going to want to do that. Is he going to go to LSU? Is he going to go to university of Miami? No, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. The players probably just going to have to take what's, what's offered to him and these clubs really more from the ownership side than, than the scouting side. I think the scouting side would feel really uncomfortable in, in that type of a, a negotiation where the owner is going to ask them to really lowball the players, but having a hard slot value is no Oakland A's or Orioles or Yankees or whoever. If you pick this player here and the pick value is $2 million, you have to pay this player $2 million. I'm sure there would be things for, you know, PED tests or, Uh, a physical and and, and that complicates things Mm -hmm. a a little bit, but if you have a hard slot value in a lot of ways that that gives the player a lot more negotiating leverage than he would otherwise have because he's in a very, a kid from a kid from Caracas or, or or from, from bunny and, and the DR is, is in a much different place as far as negotiating leverage with an MLB club compared to a 
a, a high school player at, at IMG Academy. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you even see the differences in the kind of the leverage that players in the amateur draft have, because there are kids who are from more well-off backgrounds who are able to say, no, you know what, I'm fine going to my power five division one baseball program. I'm going to wait. I think I'm worth more than that. Where there are other kids who maybe didn't come from means uh, who that money would be much more life-changing to them. Uh, and, and it makes, it makes the players incentivized to take it. So I do think that while you're right, the kids on the international side um, are probably across the board more affected by it. You even see those, those kind of gradations in the amateur draft too. So the fact that, that the hard slotting system would give them some sort of protection from that uh, is awesome. And I, I honestly wish it was something that the amateur draft now would, would turn to. The, the other thing I had heard was that, so what I, one thing I really would not want to see happen or, or one of my concerns for a long time with international draft is you're doubly rewarding bad teams <laughs> and you're further mm-hmm. incentivizing tanking yep. because if you have an international in the draft, it's, it's reverse order of winning percentages, how you line up the picks. So team with the worst record pirates pick first and so on down. So teams tank and they tank for multiple years and they rack up these high draft picks and it's a strategy that I think works, mm-hmm. but I, I don't want it to be. You don't incentivized. want to incentivize that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just don't want to incentivize even further by saying, Oh, all right. Well now you can get, you know, access to Jack lighter and Roderick Arias in, in the same year, just because you were really bad and <laughs> you tanked and you put a terrible team out there at the, the major league level. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I, what I wrote before, because what I'd heard was that at least one, one iteration of this would be that instead of just having the same order of the, of the draft in the United States and giving them, you know, two number one overall picks to the worst team, the draft would rotate each year based on division which sounds kind of weird, right? So you would have the team, or the teams in the American League East one year would have the, the top five overall picks. The next year, the AL Central will get the top five picks. And then every six years, it would rotate. So if, if you're just, you know, if, if you're the Pirates and you're tanking and, and you're trying to get a really high draft pick, well, you're not necessarily going to get that if it's mm-hmm. if it's not your turn. Now, I don't know that that's actually going to be the the system that ends up going into into place. Obviously, all of this still has to be collectively bargained, but I think it does give some insight into MLB's thinking that they're they're kind of thinking the same thing that hey, let's let's not let's not give these teams that just tank extra incentive to uh or extra access to top players in in the international what do you think would happen if let's say there was an international draft and the order was basically just the inverse of the amateur draft do you think that's something that would maybe solve a a tanking issue that's (laughs) where i went when you started talking about preventing tanking so if you're the dodgers you you get the 
All right. There you go. Happen. It's a reward. You get the top pick. It, yeah, it is because the Astros lost a pick, but I think the Dodgers would be last this year either way. So Yeah, that would be a spicy way to I, I to think do that's it. fascinating too because <laughs> it, it almost like I haven't thought through it at all. I literally just thought of it when you're talking about this, but like there is a reward in a sense for doing well. At the same time, you you don't have people who can argue, okay, you're just making the rich teams richer. Uh, I feel like that's an interest. I kind of want to like dive into it a little bit more, but I feel like that would be a cool, a cool solution to it. Cause you win the world series or you're the best team in the regular season. Uh, and then you get the top pick and maybe it flips every year. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but I don't know that MLB would go for it. Cause it would sort of uh, destroy their, <laughs> their, their ability to talk about, uh, how the draft is for competitive for balance. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're balanced. Like the, like the competitive balance rounds mm-hmm. that they have, which mm-hmm. are specifically designed to imbalance the draft, <laughs> but we call them officially the, or they call them the competitive balance rounds. Like refuse. The, 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 we call them the supplemental. Su- they're the supplemental rounds. Yeah, not- I think even on our draft board, if you go, we have them listed as like one S and two S. Yeah. I think that's a, and I'm sure that's stubborn the, baseball America thing. I think baseball, that I yeah, that's support. our that's our style that we've done for <laughs> forever. And I know there are probably readers who are really confused, but if we say supplemental first round, it's the same as the competitive balance round A or whatever. Yeah, I think it would it would be great to see what the response would be just from fans if they came out of that. I don't I don't think they're gonna do that. I don't th- I don't think the MLB would implement yeah that, but. I, well, I, I do. I do like incentivizing. Hey, you should get more rewards for being good. Absolutely. I, I don't know that that's necessarily the way to go, but I, I, I do. I do like the, and I, I don't know exactly what the best way to do it is, but I do like the idea of, hey, let's not just, if the Pirates are going to try to be bad for the next few years, uh, let's not just give them a whole, you know, gift wrap them a bunch of. Mm-hmm really good players both on the or give them access to the best players in the draft in, in the states and internationally uh, I, I i so i do like that 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 mindset and and i'm curious to see what the what the final outcome is going to be there yeah well i think there's a lot of opportunities really with with both drafts moving forward because there's already been pretty substantial changes to the amateur draft just in the wake of the covid pandemic and I just feel like there's a lot of opportunity to kind of get creative with things. And I'm not sure if you're going to see too many drastic changes to the amateur draft, but it, I mean, it was five rounds last year. Clearly it's shorter now with the new minor league system that we're working with. Uh, so there, I feel like we're in a time where a lot of things are kind of up for, up for being changed and up for being made better. Hopefully. Yeah. Do you see changes that you think are, either going to come to the draft or, or that should come to the draft. Obviously the big one, you know, with, you know, with it coming down from 40 rounds to five rounds last year was, mm-hmm. was an aberration. But like you said, with the slicing of my 40, 42, I think it was minor league clubs. Mm-hmm. There's, it's just, it seems like a shorter draft is going to be not five rounds, but it does seem like a shorter. Yeah, I, I can't imagine we're ever going back to forty rounds. Yeah, no, I I would be surprised too. I just feel like every minor league spot that a player takes up now carries 
like a much bigger percentage of a team's total like prospect package that they have. So I've, I've kind of thought about it more through how do, how do teams shift their drafting philosophy in this new system rather than like, what are the logistical changes that are coming? Uh, Because that's just kind of what I've been fascinated by. Like does the draft get even more college heavy now that we have a minor league system where maybe it doesn't cater as well to long-term high school projection guys, players like Justin Lang last year, who is immensely talented, but is exceptionally raw as well. And maybe needs a lot more time to develop. Like in this new system, are we going to see players like that given a shorter leash to uh, take steps in their development? Just because like we talked about, like every position matters more. There are, there are fewer positions going around. So it's the fluff is being, cut from the minor league system. So does that change how teams develop? I think teams are kind of many teams have started pivoting to the college demographic because you can feel a lot better about their statistical resume, the models. Uh, maybe it's easier for the models to handle that player. Um, not to say that there's no analytics you can use for the high school players, but I am really curious to see which teams are just going to let colleges develop players for them. Um, for the first three years after their high school career and which teams are going to maybe zig where everyone else is zagging and go for those high upside guys and that might need a, a little bit more time and, and hopefully that pays off for those. Because I, th- I think what is great about baseball is the fact that two teams can have totally different answers to how they're going to go about that and have success with it. Yeah, diversity of strategies and yeah. tactics I just think makes it more entertaining for for all of us but yeah i mean that's that's the part i hate is i love freedom man that's why i love the i love i love it that's what part of why i love the international side is you just have that freedom to players have freedom i mean obviously there's there's restrictions on spending and, and all that but there's freedom on on which team you can sign with freedom as a club for, to be able to go out and sign whichever players you, you want. I mean, teams have roughly equal ish bonus pools. Obviously the Braves are in a little different situation <laughs> the last couple of years, but well, that's, that's over now, right? They can, they can get back in the party with everyone else starting in the 2021 class. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're back at it. So, and <laughs> they're, they're gonna, I think they're gonna make some a couple big, big players coming for, their way in the 2021 class but yeah, yeah like check out we, ben's international board let me plug it again for you on the pod stop what you're doing and go look at it it's um but yeah just what you were saying on the draft side in the states i i, I miss that freedom of of the old system where all right if we if we want to buy this if we want to pay this player and and buy him out of school we can do that and bring him into our our system, not this draft that just really handcuffs teams' ability to bring in, like you said, the good, but maybe a little more on the rawish type side of, of player, or where you're involving more projection on them, or or a guy like like we were talking about on the last podcast with Kumar Rocker or Jack Leiter, who just have a really really good. And, and pretty polished for their age too, but just have big price tags. I'd, I'd love to see those guys in 
pro ball and uh, obviously with a pandemic things, the timetables shift, but mm-hmm. you can, if you're really good, like those guys are, you could move faster through a system. If, if you're signing out of high school, then, then you can, if you sign out of college, it's, we, we see that certainly internationally with Juan Soto and Vlad Jr. and, mm-hmm. and, and Tatis, these guys get into the big leagues at, 19 20 years old i mean these are the mutant type players that were the exceptions to the rule but you can you can have that faster access sometimes then those guys are gonna well tatis is not going to because of his (laughs) contract but those guys are gonna hit free agency in their in their mid-20s and and obviously in tatis's case it gives him even more leverage in his in his early 20s to sign a gazillion dollar Mm -hmm. uh, contract that's gonna end in some year I don't even want to think about, but <laughs> I, 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 I think do. I'll be 40 years old when that contract is up. Yeah. So yeah. You can add like visit. 14, add 14 years to your age. Yeah. You, you can go, come bro. visit me in the nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't know if you want to talk too much about like service time, but that kind of leads me to my thoughts on like how I hope service time improves in the future. Like those players getting to the majors at such a young age and succeeding and really becoming like the new wave of like faces of baseball is awesome. And the current system really doesn't incentivize teams to push those players through if they're ready. I think there are a number of teams who have started to just say, screw it. Like the Padres didn't really seem too hesitant to push Fernando Tatis, but for every example of that, there are probably more of teams that are holding back their stars because, or the the players they know are going to become stars because that one extra year of control over them is, is so much is worth it so much to this team. So I hope in the future with this new CBA, we have some sort of service time system where basically the clock starts ticking when teams acquire them through the draft, basically like, let's say you have six years. I don't know what the actual timeline would be, but basically if the clock started ticking as soon as you acquired a player, so the incentive instead was flipped. How can we get this player to the big league level to make an impact as soon as possible. I think that would be a lot more exciting. And I think we wouldn't have to deal with Chris Bryant issues and with players taking really, really cheap deals so they could kind of get to the big league level. Uh, but the team's getting something out of it with a, an undervalued contract and, and more years of control. So, yeah, I do think that's definitely, definitely important and more. It's always in the news, especially and on people's minds this time of year and even more so thanks to the uh, Seattle Mariners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, with Jerry Kelnick. But the, 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 the one other thing I was going to mention on, on the draft is that, so what I was saying before with the hard slot value where, okay, the, the pick value here is a million dollars. You have to pay this player a million dollars. So what I Remember, I was saying there, there were the clubs themselves, say the international scouting director or the international scouting department might say, okay, the pick value here is, is $2 million. We don't see anybody here who's worth $2 million. So the, why, why do we have to keep – we have to take a player and pay him more than what we think he's worth? Mm-hmm. So what I heard is that MLB – Again, this all has to be negotiated with collective bargaining, and they could th- things could have possibly changed by now on this. But 
I think it's, you know, I think it's a fair point. And, and I think what we'll see is potentially those hard slot values where if you take a player at 10 and the slot value is 2 million, you have to pay him $2 million or you could trade picks. So that's what, that's what MLB told the international club personnel at, at this meeting in, uh, I believe it was in Miami in 2019. So now, okay, if you take a player there, you have to pay him that amount of money. But if you don't want to take anybody there, you have the freedom now to trade that pick, which obviously in, in the draft in the United States, you, you can trade what the, the competitive balance, yep, competitive imbalance picks, right? <laughs> but, the, but otherwise, you can't trade picks. So I think that I would be really interested to see teams being able to trade international draft picks again to see the diversity of strategies that could potentially come out from that do do you just want to rack up volume of picks later on in the draft because you you think you can find players who are are not as high profile and and go that way do you the way the way i view it you can pretty I, i think teams have a pretty good sense of who the top Usually the number one or two guy is in, in a given class. I think if you just look back at our, our historical ranking since 2012 or 13, uh, the tracker of the number one guy is pretty good. Obviously he misses because, again, 16-year-old kids, right? It's yeah. not, the, not the easiest projection in the world. But you look at the number one player, I think the tracker is really good. And you look at the top five to ten players in a class, the tracker is really good Do teams – are, are teams going to want to load up and try to get multiple picks in the top top 10 or, or top five? Is that number one overall pick going to be super valuable if, if there's a Jason Dominguez out there or a Wander Franco or a Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that would be super interesting to see. And I don't know if they're going to extend that to the draft in in the States, but – I, I I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on trading. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to be super against pick trading in the draft from a purely selfish reason because it would, it seems like it, <laughs> well, it would make the mock drafts a nightmare. And also just the coverage of it would be, it would be, it would be so much more difficult to cover that, especially if the pick trades happened in the way they do in the NFL where they're happening the night of, which I would imagine that's probably how it would go with baseball. Um, but I think I've come around to the idea that like kind of to the point we were talking about earlier allows for more flexibility of roster building and just general strategy for teams if they want to be really aggressive or if they maybe want to trade out of some of their valuable picks to help the major league team win now. I I think I've grown more in, in the sense that that would be more fun to see. And also again, from a fan perspective, fans love pick trading and they love the idea that they could maybe trade up to get a better player or maybe trade down and get really good value. So I think I've come around to the, to the idea that it would be at least more entertaining. I think the concern would be from like MLB side. Maybe I've heard this thrown around. I don't know how legit it is. I've heard there would be a concern of teams, maybe like, really abusing other teams and and making them look bad in hindsight and there's 
this sense of wanting to like protect teams uh, from that. I don't know how much truth there is to that. I think teams have, have what they're doing figured out um, by and large, but no, I, I do think I'm coming around to it and just hearing you talk about it from the international side, I, I think it would add a lot to uh, the stateside draft as well. Yeah. And, and you know what, if you don't have it figured out and a team does have a, yeah. a really good strategy, great. Yes. <laughs> we should reward that. Yes. We should reward teams having See, I, intelligence. I think- Trying to good decisions. Trying and to we come punish up, the ones that make bad decisions. <laughs> trying to come up with a with an argument against pick trading is very hard to do. To find to find a an argument that makes a lot of sense or moves me much, it really is like it makes mock drafts more difficult. So that's why I didn't want to do it. But like actually thinking through it, like yeah, I do think I'd be more on board. I think everyone who's interested in the draft, I think people who uh, like the I don't know, but the players really care. Um, but the, the actual teams who are making the picks, the scouts and, and the fans, I feel like most of them would be more excited about that opportunity. There's no, there's no draft department in baseball that would think, oh, we're really going to get screwed by this. Everyone would be excited about the opportunities they had in pick trading, I would imagine. It's, it's more, again, it's more freedom. If you don't want to pick at the top of the draft or, or you want to use those those you know a draft pick is in the the pick itself before you even select a player is, is an asset if, if, if you want to use that to better your team in some other way you, i think it'd be cool to have the freedom to 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 do that and, and to see the different strategies that would come out of it I, what they should have done this year and instead they went the opposite way is they should have allowed teams to trade draft picks this year because it would be the perfect opportunity I think to do it on a trial basis and see how it would work in, internationally you, you do have bonus pools but you're allowed to trade up for uh, there's limits on how much pool space you can trade for but you're yeah, allowed you can move to trade bonus pool money yeah yeah, you have your whole bonus pool and you're allowed to trade for additional bonus pool money. Or you were until the pandemic hit and then MLB changed the rules in basically in the middle of the game and said, okay, you can't trade pool money anymore. Which I really hate that because, look, MLB knows this, like we talked about and like I've been writing about for years and years and years this is not a secret teams players have commitments to teams well in advance and sometimes those players the or the teams have these agreements with players and they know that they need to be able to trade for more bonus pool money to to make that happen and all of a sudden mlb in the middle of the game is saying oh no you can't trade for more bonus pool money anymore and that really, really screwed over some players who had to take significant haircuts in, in some cases as far as the, the amount of money that they were able to sign for, not because of anything, any fault of the individual club itself. It's just that MLB gave them a little bit smaller bonus pools than they were expecting to have in the first place because of the pandemic. Okay, all right, we'll set that aside. But to not allow them to trade uh, – 
that 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 I really that that decision really bothered me. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, okay, we're in a pandemic, and revenues are are taking a hit, and 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 all that. Okay, fine. If you're if you're the Oakland A's, and and you say, well, we you know we're cutting back, and we don't want to spend money on on international players anymore. Uh, okay, trade your money to somebody else that does. Well, then it wouldn't be fair, Ben. Why would that not be fair? <laughs> no, I'm just saying that's what people that's what people would say. The rich but, the rich would get richer. That would be the counter argument. I'm fully with you. I think I, I think teams yeah, I, I just I think you should have the freedom. You know there are the, to, the people out there who defend the small market teams and say they can't afford these things. But if you want to trade all right, so but if you want to trade that pool space, you can get something else in return. And you know the, the reality is all of these teams can afford to pay the yes you know five or six million dollars that's in their yeah bonus pool, but they should have done it this year. I think you could limit the number of rounds, the number of picks that could be tradable, but they should have allowed teams to trade picks for the draft this year because for the 2021 draft, and I know I've mentioned this to clubs and every. Every, or to different front offices and scouts. Mm-hmm. And every time I say it, they're like, yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> yep. Because there was no minor league season in, in 2020. Yeah, you have the alternate training sites. And if you're doing the data share, you have some access to that. Otherwise, it's just the club, only the, you know, only the Yankees personnel are allowed at the Yankees alternate training site. Mm-hmm. You have instructional league, so you, you could scout players there. But this is not really a good look to get to to build around a, a ton to to make a to make a trade around. If, if if you're trying to make a trade in in the off season, if you're trying to trade Francisco Lindor, I mean, this is your this is your franchise player, and you're trying to trade him for a lot of players who you haven't you have seen. your old reports on. Yeah. Yeah. On these old, old reports. I mean, and, and you can look at the trade itself. I mean, who, look who they got. They got, uh, who was it? It was Andres Jimenez, right? Rosario, Isaiah green um, and Josh Wolf. Yeah. So two guys who are in the big leagues and two guys who they had fairly updated ish reports mm-hmm. from, from the draft. Yep. So if I, I wish they would have just said on a trial basis, all right, instead of, of, of the I think these are great rules, points, man. Yeah. If, if you, if you allow teams to trade draft picks just for the 2021 draft, we got a, the, it's, it's only for one year. The it's CBA not like the draft wasn't already shaken up entirely to begin with. So I think you're, I think you're spot on here. Yeah. We're making up all these rules <laughs> on the fly <laughs> as we go along in this, in the in the March agreement, anyway, specific to this very weird COVID season, I would have. I, I really wish we could have seen. Or, or you're making a trade at the at the deadline last year. I mean, I really wish you could have had teams could have had the opportunity to say, yeah, you know what? In, instead of let's open up our options for everybody and say, all right, we, we want to make a trade. We want or we want to trade this player from our our big league roster, but. We just let, let us pick our own guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think that makes all the sense in the world. So 
obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the likelihood? I don't know how long you want to spend on draft topics, but or, or at least logistical draft topics. What do you think is the likelihood that the trading actually does happen? If you had to, if you had to guess for pick trading for the international draft, do you feel mm-hmm. like that is more likely than not? I guess is the easiest way to ask you. I think so. Cause again, I, I think it's to, if you have the hard slotting, I think the clubs, in, including the, like the, really the owners are, are the people whose opinion matters more so than the international directors or, or, or the GMs, even mm-hmm. uh, the owners are, I think are going to say, Hey, we want, you know what? We don't want to be locked in to paying a guy $4 million <laughs> in, in, if we don't think he's worth yeah. $4 million. So, okay. I, I think they'll want that as some freedom on, on their ends. I, you know, there may be some limitations on trading, but I, I do think we'll, we'll see it. I, I don't know that we'll see it. And uh, I, I, I just really don't actually have a, any specific knowledge about what would happen for it in the, whether it would happen in the draft in the United States, but I do think if we have those hard slot values on the international side, you'll probably see trading to, to balance that out. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, with, with a lot of draft talk behind us, or again, logistical draft talk, do you want to pivot to some players? Um, there were a number of players who I think are worth mentioning here who have had loud performances this season in college. Um, all of these players, I believe, that I wanted to touch on, you can find more in-depth information on, on our write-ups at baseballamerica.com. Make sure you got a lot of time because I was reading that. I was pretty busy today. And I, was, <laughs> I kept that took me a while to yeah, get through it all. I maybe I need know. to be more concise. You think it's no? I then? I know you got the setup going on at home all weekend with like your eight different monitors or <laughs> however yeah, many I, games. I don't have quite eight. You're watching. I, I really feel like JJ does this, and he will tell you about it gleefully. He's crazy, but he, yeah, he sets that. up. He's got him like a multi-monitor <laughs> desk setup generally. And then he'll use a TV, he'll use multiple tablets in his phone, and he'll have them all playing at the same time. And like, that sounds cool if you were watching like March Madness or if you were just watching. But if I'm actually trying to like bear down on players and like take notes, I can't, I can't have all those screens going on. I have to make it a little more simplified. I'll have a couple. Also, yeah. It's also a great window into jj's mind <laughs> yes and it's yes. a perfect encapsulation of- <laughs> he can juggle a little bit more things than i can but no i have yeah, a few tabs he, he, a few games that i'm monitoring and i'll flip back and forth but mostly i'm trying to bear down on one at a time his future rule five press list on on another screen <laughs> exactly but um but yeah another- no, it's, it, i was gonna say it uh a lot of big college bats who it seems like could be could be first round picks well, I think, yeah, I definitely focused on a lot of bats. I think team, I think the industry is probably like wanting to see which bats are going to service themselves. I think the college hitters are the biggest question in this draft uh, class. I don't know how much we've gone into it on this podcast, but I don't think any specific demographic when you're talking about college hitters, college pitchers, high school hitters, and high school pitchers, I don't think any demographic is hurt more from the unique situation that we're in than college bats. I mean, so much of what they weren't able to do last spring. And like we've talked about before, plenty before, and I feel like I've written a million times. So I apologize if I've repeated this stuff you've heard from me, but like not having the Cape Cod league, not having team USA, those are such valuable looks for teams. 
And so now it's basically like, you got this spring, show us what you can do, like put up as many numbers as you can. So the elite, the elite bats are always the hot commodity that teams want. And I feel like there aren't really a ton in this year's class that you can feel very comfortable with um, just because you don't have that resume. But we dove into all of the guys that we have ranked in the first round this year, just kind of checking in on them and seeing how they were doing. One of the guys that I really want to mention is Boston College outfielder, Sal Frelick. He has kind of been a, a guy who I was excited to see for a while now, just because his tool set is pretty electric. He's not the biggest guy. We talk about some of these like high school and amateur guys who are man children. That's not Frelick. He's an undersized guy, but he's pretty electric on both sides of the ball. He's a 70 grade runner. Uh, he's an athletic defender in center field. He made a couple of really impressive leaping catches going back. He made a diving catch coming in this weekend against Duke. Uh, and so far he's been hitting the ball really well. I think he has really good bats of ball skills. Uh, generally he's got a little bit more pop than you would expect out of his frame. Uh, he showed an ability to go to the opposite field for extra base hits, pulled the home run, so really this weekend, I feel like he was one of the more standout players for me at the top yeah. of the draft class. I don't know how much you've seen of him, but he was really impressive to me. I'm hoping to a lot more. Yeah. DC, obviously not too far, but he, he does seem like the kind of player who could could really rise up the board as a mm-hmm. college college bet. Like you said, you don't have the typical safety in terms of history they would normally have on a a college player but it seems like a lot of the checkpoints that you're looking for in a first round pick and potentially a high first Mm -hmm. round pick are there between the the hitting ability and and the defense and athleticism at a premium position in the middle of of the diamond i think you hit on it there i think the profile with him is really going to help because he he's got such a high floor in terms of his supplemental tools with the speed and the defense and there aren't typically a ton of like really toolsy center fielders in the college level just because a lot of those guys get taken out of high school it's why Garrett Mitchell was so exciting last year I think it's why Judd Fabian is very interesting Uh, Fabian and Frelick are really the two most exciting college center fielders I think teams probably feel a lot better about the bat-to-ball skills uh, that Frelick brings to the table so I think he's probably pushing himself up towards the top tier. Again, we had him 17. We had Colton Kowser and Judd Fabian ahead of him in terms of college outfielders. So it's not like we had him buried or anything. We started him pretty aggressively. Um, but I, I think he's just kind of playing up to his tool set and the expectations for him. And every, every, club, well, every scouting director is going to be bearing down, I think, on that club pretty hard too just because of how much – I mean, they, yeah, I mean, they, they have, have three, three guys, guys who could potentially yeah. go in the first round, and it wouldn't be crazy. Uh, Cody Morissette and then Mason Pelio, uh, the right-handed pitcher, who's really kind of now in this kind of second tier of guys who are just outside of the first. But, like, if any of them performed, took a step forward in their strike throwing, showed better stuff, uh, or really just had an impressive season, they could push themselves up in the first round. So I think you're definitely right that that Boston College team is going to be bared down on pretty, pretty in-depth. Um, another guy who was really impressive and I got to watch, uh, a good bit of his start is Sam Bachman. Uh, he's at Miami university, Miami of Ohio, and they played Florida international this past weekend. So I'm 
that that series got a ton of heat just because everyone in Florida gets looked at a lot early in the season because that's where everybody's at. But I was talking with um, some scouts today, actually, and, and Bakken's name is getting mentioned right alongside Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter, which Ooh. is very loud. Like, I don't want to say that he's going to go in the top 10 picks just now, but like the fact that his name is being lumped together with those guys tells you how exciting he is. I mean, he was up to 99, hundred with the fastball with a slider that got 17 whiffs. It was really making hitters look silly. Is that 17? I think, yeah, 17. I'll, I'll Just on check the slider. Yes, 17. Wow. I think 17 whiffs with that pitch. And he touches 100. Exactly. Yeah, like those are, <laughs> you may be looking at 270s there. I don't know what uh, the consensus is on the slider. I've heard uh, people that put above average to plus, and then I've heard recently that some people put a future seven on it from that look. So the stuff is plenty loud. And he's a guy who, I mean, he, he filled up the zone pretty well in this outing. It's not the most smooth delivery, um, but his stuff is pretty electric. And he's performed over two outings so far. I think he's got 17 strikeouts and just three walks over two starts so far. So he's come out of the gate really loud and is a name you probably should watch out for. Um, we we can go into a couple more of these players if you want, Ben. I don't I don't mean to just run off. No, I, you can watch, tell but. me all you want about <laughs> college pitchers throwing a hundred with nasty sliders. Yeah, I and think, especially since you guaranteed he was going to be a top ten pick right now. <laughs> Do not hold me to that, please. Don't. So much is going to change, uh, or could change. But I, I think the one other guy that I would really want to mention in this this year's draft class is Justice Thompson, who uh, is at my alma mater, North Carolina. And I think it, it'll be interesting to see how these the college hitters who maybe come from a lot further down the board. It's not to say Thompson is an unknown. He was known at Juco last year. There was some pretty good heat going in to see him early in the season. Um, but he came out and really performed against Virginia Tech. He's a six foot four guy who has a lean frame. I think he's 200, 205 pounds right now. Uh, and again, like Frelick, it seems like he's a 70 grade runner, um, but he has that projectable frame. He has some power in the tank um, and is a really, really impressive defender in center field. So we've heard some like top two, top three round buzz because of that performance. But talking with some of the guys who have a little bit more history with him, uh, I think there are more questions on the hit tool and the swing and miss. So it'll be really interesting to see where Thompson eventually fits on the board i i think just how well he performs this season is going to determine how high he goes yeah that uh, sounds like a pretty interesting package of size and speed and at least early performance so far yeah definitely i think i think there's probably a disconnect right now with maybe some national evaluators who just saw him in this look where he looked really good and maybe area guys who have bared down on him a little bit more like last fall apparently he showed a lot of swing and miss so kind of finding out where the true hit tool lies between those two if it's towards one of the extremes or if it's directly in the middle mm. it's going to be fascinating to watch with him moving forward because I mean like you just said a center field profile with that kind of speed with that kind of defensive ability and with that body and maybe power potential is really exciting and he's going to have all the opportunity in the world to prove his bat when he's doing nothing but playing ACC competition this season. 
with that already getting started. So that's definitely a name you're going to want to keep an eye on. Um, we always know that college bats move up the board during the spring. High school pitchers tend to slide down as these college bats kind of establish themselves higher and higher. Maybe he's one of the ones that's going to keep moving up the board, but we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on him. Yeah, that, uh, that definitely is a profile. It sounds like it's moving up. Mm-hmm. You want to uh, dive into my my guy, Kevin Parada, at all? Yeah, yeah. You you love Kevin Parada coming out of high school, and it seems like seems like Georgia Tech finally has a good catcher, huh? Yeah, they really struggle <laughs> with that specific uh, position. But no, Parada was a guy, really, when we started watching the high school players in the 2020 class, so it would have been early in the summer of 2019, um, I remember me and Nathan Rohde, friend of the program, former, former baseball American himself. We were at USA baseball, I think. And Nathan was asking me who, who was my personal cheese ball of the class. And I hadn't really figured it out at that point because I was really putting eyes on a lot of guys for the first time. And Parada just barreled everything that I saw, even if he was making outs and not getting on base, it seemed like everything that came off his bat was a really hard hit line drive or deep fly ball. And so he, he became my cheese ball pretty quickly. And I feel like since then, all he's done is hit the ball and hit the ball hard. Um, he was guy, he was the second overall ranked player who made it to campus. I think only Carson Montgomery at Florida state ranked on RBA 500 higher than him uh, to make it to campus. And so far he's leading Georgia tech in triple slash categories and his homering and showing that bat. So he's super exciting and is actually going to be draft eligible in 2022 because of his age. So I have long been aboard the Kevin Parada train. There's still room and still time to get on now if you want to, Ben. Uh, I think I think I might I think I might have to join you there. I think you have a <laughs> pretty good eye for it. And yeah, like you said, he's high school player a year ago. Mm-hmm. And because of the new draft date that that uh, that got moved back, he'll be mm-hmm. 2022 so it's even even earlier that uh, we'll probably be bearing down on him even more yep no doubt georgia tech and catchers man it's a pretty good combination yeah the the class last year had i think a couple of really interesting catchers between him and tyler soderstrom mm-hmm. also out of high school obviously the first round pick with the a's and i know you were really big on both those guys and we have obviously the benefit of some hindsight now well I guess with Parada too with what he's mm-hmm. done early on in in college but mm-hmm. the reviews we got just talking to some people recently and and obviously that uh you know the work that we did over for the for the handbook uh that uh Mark Chiarelli did for our our A's prospect rankings this year the reviews that we got on Tyler Soderstrom were about mm-hmm. as good as you could right. expect both at the alternate training site where he's obviously going up against much, much older players. It's it's not guys who we would have seen in the Arizona league. It's guys who would be up and down to the, to the big league roster and, and mm-hmm. some upper level minor league players. And it sounds like he smoked the ball there, yep. kept doing it at, at instructionally, uh, I mean, there were there were some guys I've been bearing down on recently, just getting updated reports on some of these 2020 draft picks, and I don't know, there's no 
there's no instructional league all-star team. But <laughs> if there was, uh, he'd, he'd got to be on there. I mean, and, and we ranked Soderstrom now as our, our number one prospect in, in the A system. So we're, yeah. <laughs> we're very we're much fully on board yeah. on Tyler Soderstrom. How, how do you stack those two guys up? Yeah, if you if you look at kind of their how their draft reports read, there's a lot of similarities with both of them. They were both offensive oriented catching guys. Uh, both were seen as two of the better bats in the prep class. Both had questions about their defensive work behind the plate. Were they going to stick there? Uh, so just kind of in a thumbnail view, they're pretty similar. I think the question, or or maybe the difference is Tyler Soderstrom is a left-handed hitter which helps. I think Soderstrom is a little bit taller, uh, maybe had a, a bit more usable power. And I think his swing, just kind of looking back at some video, it looks like his swing is a little bit, little bit more leveraged. Uh, it was leveraged then uh, for more accessible power. This is just a non-scout giving his take on, on the swing plane of these two hitters. But Parada's was a little bit flatter. Um, not to say he doesn't have power, but I would get a lot of comparisons between Soderstrom and some of the offensive oriented catchers who had gone in front of him like Bo Naylor was one as if you kind of think of Soderstrom as more of a power and a little bit less bat than what Bo Naylor showed coming out of the draft that's an interesting one but yeah it's they are similar we had Soderstrom higher and we even heard chatter kind of on draft day or leading up to draft day that Soderstrom had some like top 10 pick buzz so it seems like the industry is fully in on that bat. And so far, it sounds like it's already paying off. So I think in a thumbnail view, they are very similar players in terms of how they profile as offensive-oriented guys with catcher questions that will need to be answered in the future. Yeah, I mean, that to me says – and we still have two college seasons to go <laughs> for, for Parada. But I think I, if, if, we, if they redid the draft today – Soderstrom went 26. He got paid more than the 26th mm-hmm. overall pick would yeah, for sure. suggest. But if, if you had to redo the draft today, uh, I think he would, he would go higher. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, again, the benefit of, of some, some hindsight mm-hmm. here. But that, to me, tells me Kevin Parada, it sounds like, could, could be a top 10 pick. In, in yeah, I mean, if we were talking about, again, this, this guy I'm going to bring up is a left-handed hitter with catching questions. But if we were talking about Kevin Parada, the same way we're talking about Adrian Del Castillo in a few years, it wouldn't shock mm. me. Like, if Kevin Parada put up massive offensive numbers in the ACC this year, again, he'll have, he'll have one uh, fewer year. Although, if you factor in the pandemic season, it won't be an entire year. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's the kind of player I think you could be talking about. So, yeah, I get I get kind of jittery with high school catchers. Just the track yeah, record. Not, it has not been a great profile historically. Yeah, Kyle. I think that's Kyle. probably why you see teams hesitant to to give big money to those. You you basically have to be con- convinced that the bat is going to play at another position. Which I think for both Soderstrom and Parada, there are people who believe their bats could play at a corner infield or a corner outfield position. Yeah, Kyle really opened my eyes to the really not hot yeah. track record. We, we talk about catchers. I don't know if if high school right-handers are still the most talked about in terms of like a leery draft demographic, but the high school catchers is the worst one, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's just it's it's just so hard to do. Yes. <laughs> and there's so much 
so so much that that you have to learn mm-hmm. and develop and it's just so demanding on you and yeah, then i think it, it requires we, yeah, yeah go ahead i was gonna say sometimes i think like collectively we like meant oh it's a catcher so he's not gonna have to hit that much but you still have to hit major league pitching yes. so i think sometimes mentally we make this adjustment well oh some questions on the bat and when you have guys like that especially if a guy has like a great arm which is really fun to watch mm-hmm. you can get i i think that kind of profile is is risky to me where there's questions on the bat and, and you're just falling in love with something that's really just jumps out at you right away and is is so fun to watch a guy with you know one nine or sub one nine pop times and yep. games especially a young kid doing it and you're like oh it's fun to dream on but i, I i'd almost rather go with the 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 high school catcher again it's 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 easy to say this in, in hindsight right but like a you know with Will Myers or uh, maybe like an even Neil Walk guys who who were catchers in high school but were and, and obviously had defensive question mm-hmm. marks about their ability to stay behind the plate yeah where you say okay even if this guy moves to another position mm-hmm. I feel pretty confident in the bat and that's what I feel about. Tyler Soderstrom, maybe he moves to mm-hmm. another position, maybe not. But if he goes to third base or if he goes to a corner outfield spot, the the what we've seen from his just the, the swing, the strike zone judgment, the power. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy could hit in the middle of a lineup. Yeah, no doubt. I, and I think the key is like again, does the bat clear that that bar for you where you can feel confident? figuring it out or, or for the bat profiling at another position. I, I think if you do, if you do look at the high school catchers who switched off to different positions, that track record, I believe is a little bit better than the high school catchers who remained high school catchers. So you'd probably have to factor that into your decision-making in terms of which players you're going to take. And, and again, I think what's fascinating to me is the, the robo ump discussion. If that comes in the future, how does that change how you assess defensive ability Receiving won't be as prioritized, I would imagine, when robo-umps are in charge of the strike zone. And just the fact that the gap between amateur evaluations of catcher defense and what players become in pro ball can be so wide. I think I've talked mm-hmm. to a few scouts who've said that that transition is, is tougher than any other defensive position. Like evaluating a catcher as an amateur is more difficult than any other position because I think they're probably they're not number calling of, a game or is it I think it's probably a number of factors just because the body is so important and how that develops moving forward and how they can move behind the plate because they're not calling a game because I think the defensive instruction between amateur players and the defensive instruction you get from like professional catching coaches the gap there is probably much bigger um and it's just harder to evaluate I would imagine when you're in person watching, like, like you said, you can get caught up in an arm strength, but there's a lot of nuance of the game and, and so much of it is mental and really like want to, like it takes a lot to get behind a plate and get beat up every game and continue giving a hundred percent effort while also maintaining like game plans and guiding your pitchers along and knowing how to pitch around different batters. Like there's a reason the catching position is the hardest on the diamond. I think all of those kind of probably, pile up on each other and make it a challenge yeah I think that's a big thing you look at with when you're looking at players who are either shortstop third base 
who might be catching conversion projects, it's okay, this guy has maybe the, the body type and and the arm strength, and it seems like he has the baseball IQ, the the intelligence, the athleticism, flexibility. It it looks like he should move behind the plate, but if he doesn't want to catch, it's yeah. really hard to to do that. I do wonder if we will see more catching conversion guys, like you said, if if there's no robo umps and that bar for receiving framing. Or if there is, is robo umps eliminated. What's that? If they do bring in robo umps, yeah. If they bring in yeah. robo umps and and all of a sudden, okay, well that aspect of the game doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, then you go back to the offensive-oriented catchers who can block balls and throw people out on the bases, really, and and can manage a game. Yeah, I mean, or or just see more clubs take chances on on guys who would be conversion projects, even maybe at at even out of college. We saw Xavier Warren had a total conversion project. The the Brewers Mm -hmm. draft pick from twenty twenty. He has some catching experience, but it's it, it, and I, and I think he has some safety net options because I, I like him as a if, if he's just a third base prospect I, I like him too, but I I think you might see more clubs go go that route even with some some college guys and say well <laughs> there's not as not as much of a bar to to clear anymore as as there used to be so maybe yeah. maybe roll the dice on this guy no doubt no it's, it's a fascinating conversation I am curious to see how just the evaluation and, and development changes when we do, I, I assume the robo are coming at some point when that happens, I guess is the bigger question, but are there any other, the, um, um yeah, the, I was going to say the other guy just from checking in with people on some of these 2020 draft picks, trying to get some updated reports on them and really dig into what they were doing at the alternate training site and an instructional league to to get some 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 insight into them especially the guys who who really looked good there and, and maybe surprised one of them was was nick york the red sox first round pick their yep. their surprise first round pick certainly <laughs> on maybe less of a surprise than i think i think that pick at the time was panned by some people unnecessarily so York was definitely, I would say it was surprising that he went where he did, but I don't think it is crazy that he went there because again, York at the time was a top 100 prospect. I think the first line in his scouting report for us said that there were evaluators who thought York was the best pure hitter on the West coast, which again, like that would mean better than PCA who went in the first round and no one batted an eye. And we're talking about the Red Sox who didn't have a second round pick. So if they were one of these teams that really bought into the bat and were really confident in the hit tool projection, okay, you either take him in the first or you risk him not getting to you when you're back on the board in the third. So yes, it was surprising, but it wasn't some like crazy out there pick. Like Nick York was a very polished hitter based on his pre-draft reports. Now again, I think like you don't see very many high school second base second baseman taken. So a lot of his value is going to rely on like that hit tool projection, like panning out. But I, I think it is worth pointing out that the pick was not some insane pick. Yeah, the it was interesting reading the report 
on him from before the draft and and hearing and about what he did at the alternate site and at instructional league after he signed because the report is pretty spot on. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's just a matter of that. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of how you value that, that skill set and, and projecting high school hitters and the, and the degree of difficulty in that anyway is, 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 is kind of tricky, but it's, it's not, it's not like you're just assessing a, a, what I would consider a pure tool like power or speed or, or arm strength. Uh, but he went out at the alternate site. He wasn't there. It wasn't like a ton of at-bats out there, it doesn't sound like. But he hit well there. He hit well at the Instructional League. He had, yeah, he has pretty good bat-to-ball skills. It, it seems like he has a – his his best attribute might be his his eye. It seems like he has a really good eye for the strike zone, really good hand-eye coordination, is able to stay back on and square up breaking balls off-speed pitches and it actually seemed like that's where he did most of his damage when when he got fastballs up in the zone it's it sounds like that's where he he got beat but when when they were pitching him with soft stuff down he was able to to manipulate the bat head and, and had the hand-eye coordination that mm-hmm. uh, i think is is super important for to to being a a good hitter but uh you know we'll see how that stuff you know the stuff stuff at the top of the zone fastballs we'll, we'll see if he's able to make that uh adjustment or how that fares against better pitching or or, or just how it looks obviously in a uh you know more more extended look than than what scouts were able to get yeah last like summer that. but it, it it does seem like yeah it's you know limited to hopefully second base but it sounds like there's some some components, and I don't think he's going to be a big big masher. But hmm. it sounds like there's some components for a guy who could play second base and, and potentially be a high on base type of guy. Yeah, another one who's really fascinating from my perspective. I know you're fascinated by him as well as Evan Carter. So I think in some ways this is maybe the most surprising pick of the draft for me, just because of the information that we had on him pre-draft, and it sounds like the Rangers were one of the few teams that were really on him at this level. Um, We had heard his name prior to the draft as a guy who was like doing pretty well. Um, But he wasn't even a guy who ended up in the BA 500 and whether or not we come back, we wind up regretting that. And the Rangers look really smart for this pick. We'll be fascinating to see how it unfolds in in the future. Cause it sounds like the reports on him are really impressive. His zone control, like you were saying with York, sounded pretty advanced and this is a guy who has a chance for five tools what are your thoughts on Evan Carter yeah it's certainly just based on pre-draft reports and and the Rangers really stepped out on him but I, I mean I might like him even more than Nick York it's it's it was pretty impressive what he did yeah at at instructionally he didn't he didn't go to their their alternate training sites it was, it was more playing you know playing against players who are his own age or actually he's 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 really young for his class he, yeah, he was 17 and, when he was drafted so yeah so he had just turned 18 mm-hmm. a little bit before instructionally started and he went out there and i mean 
you guys know I, I love Maximo Acosta. He's a year older than him. I love Luis Angel Acuna. Those guys are really good players, <clears throat> but uh, he he hit better <laughs> than, than, than those guys. It's just the reality. Yeah. He hit better than maybe just about everybody out there at uh, at Rangers camp. It, it sounded like at least at an instructional league. Mm-hmm. Josh Josh Young was uh, another level. And he's he's <laughs> got dude. like a, a super projectable frame too. He's like six yes. four with a bunch of room to add weight, add power projection, like. The early returns on this pick are very good. And I think this one definitely has a chance to be kind of like the Ryan Jeffers pick from the twins who that was a guy who at the time of the draft we thought was a bit of a reach. And that one, guess what? The twins nailed it with Ryan Jeffers. They were right. We were a little low on him. Um, and Evan Carter could, could be the next one. Yeah. Like you said, six, four, a lot of room to fill out. And for a you know pretty young, tall kid, I really liked his swing i mean sometimes you worry about uh like long arms what's gonna happen but no he's pretty short it's it's pretty pretty short pretty loose fluid pretty quiet at the plate it's no no issues covering the the inner third of the plate Uh, maybe the opposite of of york in that it it seems like he really hit good fastballs but um with the with with some of the breaking stuff some some issues there but not a not as in a glaring red flag and like you said good athlete for a side for his size with a lot of room to project on on that power coming from a player who who looks like a pretty good pretty good hitter too um i don't know give me some were you so so you were on the draft show too what was the <laughs> <laughs> what, what was like the what was going on when they because you, so, can only, you can only cover because i know with him or like nick york i don't know if you were on maybe when carter i think i was on cover. when carter in terms of what what we were going to say about him without knowing about him or what do you what do you mean what what's the question well just yeah i mean what what's the because you you must be able to obviously you prepare for the show to yeah. know like all right well we these are the guys who we no, or have a pretty good idea, or mm-hmm. are gonna go early on. What was kind of the reaction? When oh, the reaction is terror guys? at first because <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy that went in the second round. It's terror and it's disappointment, and it's like uh, it's just like a deflating feeling because you want to have all the guys that are going at at this range in the draft. Like in, in a forty round draft, we can't nail every player, obviously, but it's a player who's getting more than a million dollars. You want to have a report on him. You want to know who he was. And so basically when, when we find out that Carter is the pick, uh, people are kind of scrambling to figure out, uh, okay, who has some information on him? I don't, I don't think Jim or Jonathan had much on him. Obviously those two are good at, at scrambling and getting info when it comes in. But I think we had, again, we had like one line of information on him pre-draft. So I think I went up there and just basically said what we had heard uh, but yeah, the, the knowledge that we had at the time was not a ton. So it, yeah, it was, but with it was York, fun... we had, it's, it seemed like we had a, we had a yeah, lot. On, yeah. York was, York, uh, yeah. York, we were com- comfortable with, he was a top 100 prospect. Evan Carter was a guy who might've been on a state list. And if we'd followed up with him, maybe we'd have been led to more information that put him on the 500 and we would have been okay with him. Um, but again, we could have talked to other teams who, didn't have him because it sounds like not a lot of teams did have him pre-draft. So 
no, it's, that's just one of those situations where you kind of have to scramble for information after the fact and, and throw it out there, but, but no, no scrambling when Robert Hassel got, no, he was, he was a pretty well-known commodity at that point. I mean, I think what I've learned with, with the one demographic that you don't want to be low on is like the pure, who is the best pure hitter in the high school class? Those guys always go well, or at least since I've been doing this, which is not that long. It's only a few years. They always go well. And Robert Hassel was one of the best pure hitters in the high school class. His like coverage of the zone during the showcase season was pretty impressive. Didn't seem like he had any, any holes at all. His approach was pretty impressive. And he's a guy who again, the swing just looks really good. I don't know what you think about his swing, but I mean, he's a, he's a very fun hitter to watch. He was easily the best hitter on the, the USA team that had a, a pretty loaded group of hitters. Pico Armstrong leading off. I think Robert Hassel was hitting second. He was just demolishing balls and hitting for power, hitting for average. Um, so, yeah, very polished hitter. Yeah, he, uh, he would make my, my alt-site slash instructional league all-star team. What do you like too, about him? I think. Just everything you said. Everything, again, it's – I don't know that he, he it's it's nothing that he showed that was something totally new last mm-hmm. summer, but everything we saw just further solidified what we thought about Robert Hassel coming into the draft and then mm-hmm. seeing him do it against professional pitching and, and older pitching yeah. was was really impressive. It's it's yeah, it's just a a good swing, knows the zone, stays balanced. He he uses the whole field. He can really drive the ball to to the opposite field, stays through the middle of the ball really well. I think when he learns to turn on certain pitches in, in damage counts, we're, we're going to see more power. Not that I expect him to be like a 30-plus home run guy, although it depends, obviously, on the combination of – factors including the the baseball but yeah. we, we you know we, we see guys with really good barrel skills hit for more power than they were projected to yeah, hit Chris Yelich is probably the most notable one at, at the big league level now right no doubt yeah it's <clears throat> yeah or, or Alex Bregman who's who's not that big of a a dude but or, or Altuve maybe the Astros are not a great <laughs> yeah example but I, you know I, I think we're I think regardless, those guys, you see more power from them than you would normally or, or than you would have projected from them early in their careers because mm. they're just really smart hitters but with really good good swings and, and good feel for for the barrel. So I, I think he's cer- certainly has all of the attributes there to, to, be a high, to be a high OBP type guy, and I think maybe – as he just as he matures as a hitter and, and gains more experience, we'll start to see some more more power come around. So we obviously liked him a lot going into the draft, and and now uh, I think he's 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 helped his stock just just by going out and continuing to show that against even even better pitching. Yeah, absolutely. You've touched on a number of things with hitters. Do you, do you want to dive into it all? Like what what you look for in a young hitter in terms of like evaluating them uh, or just like what you hear from scouts in terms of how they evaluate hitters. Did you want to dive into that at all? Yeah, it's uh, again, it's, it's definitely hitting is classified as a a tool, right? Like one of the, 
one of the five tools, but it's it's the one that's not really a physical tool. It's, it's almost more of a skill, right? It's it's not mm-hmm. speed. Like you run what you run. You generally throw what you throw. As far as your your arm strength, your mm-hmm. your power is is your. And those tools can change. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's a lot easier to put down a grade. Yes. On on those physical. Yeah, the hit tool is the toughest to nail. Yeah, it's for I mean, sure. You have physical components to it, but it's it's almost more of a a skill than a tool. So the for, for me, yeah, it's I, I don't like to be cookie cutter about <laughs> it. It's there there's a lot of different ways to be a a good hitter mm-hmm. at at the major league level. Uh, a swing that works for Chris Bryant can, or or Aaron Judge is is much different than the swing from Alex Bregman or Jose Altuve or yeah. or Josh Donaldson. But you you can you can play to your your strengths as a as a hitter or or as an athlete or based on your your size. So I uh, I think sometimes people get almost like too restrictive and like what mechanically is is okay. Is that what you mean? Or or just religious? Yeah. About, about hitting, just seeing some of the hitting yeah. discussions that that I don't think I'm have. on like hashtag hitting Twitter, but it seems like a pretty intense subset of Twitter. Yeah, it seems like kind of a vicious place sometimes. For, it's it for it's a man, lot easier to just acknowledge that I'm not a guru on something and not have to worry about it. You know, just listen to the the experts. The yeah, it's, we're all we're just living. talking baseball and, and trying to help, especially young players. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, there, there's certainly whether you call, you know checkpoints or, or certain attributes or. Or, or core things that that you're looking for in, <clears throat> excuse me, for in in young hitters. Uh, obviously, bat speed sticks out. Um, if if you don't have enough bat speed, it's it's hard to hit at the major league level. Now, obviously, when you're scouting really young players, that's you know, especially in Latin America, at 14, 15, 16, that can change just as you get older and stronger and you go from weighing uh, 145 pounds to filling out and and being able to swing the bat with with more authority but Mm -hmm. uh, you know looking for uh, a compact swing looking for hitters with with good hand-eye coordination who who are able to recognize pitches who have good plate discipline I think you know having a having a short swing, having a a compact or, or an efficient swing is is important. It's and I think you typically think about it as all right. Well, if you have a long swing, you're you're going to have trouble handling good velocity. You're you're going to be late, and you're going to have trouble handling pitches on on the inner third of the plate. But I, I think it also has an impact on on your ability to hit off-speed stuff too to mm-hmm. to react to breaking pitches if you have a, a longer swing your your swing is going to be less adjustable when you, you think a fastball is coming and, and all of a sudden no it's it's a breaking ball mm-hmm. um, you know if, if you have really good hand-eye coordination I think that that helps it, it leads to some innate 
bat to ball skills, but really having a, a a compact and an efficient swing really really helps you there. And and then you know, I look for a, a swing again. You can you can get away with 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 different things sometimes mm-hmm. just based on your own attributes as a as a hitter but being able to to keep the barrel in the in the zone for a long time i think just gives you more margin for for error as a hitter mm-hmm. it allows you to hit the ball um you know if if you're a little bit late you can you can hit the ball deeper in the zone mm-hmm. uh, but if you're if you're if you're on time and you're on plane i think good good things generally tend to happen yeah, no, I don't know that I have much to add to that, Ben. I mean, you, you went over pretty in-depthly and think everything you said is, is is pretty on point. I'm fascinated by, like, players who are more natural athletes versus guys who have success by being very mechanically sound and being very uh, aware of their movements in space and, and their ability to kind of adjust that based on their approach and what they're trying to do versus – the guys who are much more kind of twitchy athletic and just let their body do what it does. That's fascinating to me. I think one of the, like an example of those players contrasting is like when I was doing twins reporting, Alex Kirloff and Royce Lewis, like they both, I think most people think Kirloff is a much better hitter, but like the way Royce operates is much more based on like him just being athletic in the box, not really overthinking too much of what he's doing versus Kirloff who who seems to really have an advanced understanding of like how his swing works and adapting that, the, that kind of contrast is very fascinating to me and seeing how players can succeed with different athletic foundations, I guess. Yeah. And you can have a, a really simple calm swing with minimal movement and, and be a great hitter. And you can have bigger movements with, with more rhythm and really rely on good sequencing in your swing and, and you can be a really good hitter that way. It's, Mm. (laughs) there's a, there's a lot of different things that can, that can work, especially again, if, if you have, if you have really good hand eye coordination that it's, it's just going to help everything um, from, you know, from your, your back control, your, your ability to make frequent contact and and your ability to discern a, a ball from a strike, your, your ability to control the strike zone and, and put yourself into good hitters counts and, and take advantage of it. And then, you know, all of this stuff obviously too is on a, a, a sliding scale too, where you, you don't expect as much polish or, or as much refinement from, uh, you know, a 14 or a, a 15 year old hitter who you're, you're scouting in the Dominican Republic compared to when you're evaluating a, a 22 or, or a 23 year old player who's in, in double a. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think there's, there's a fascinating conversation to have and just kind of keep refining how you evaluate hitting and keep learning uh, moving forward. I mean, I love, I've talked about this before. I love just talking with the scouts who kind of have done this for so many years and, and know the cues to look for and how things work mechanically. Uh, it's really fascinating, but um I think with that, we're going to take a quick break here and then we'll be back afterwards to take some reader questions. So thank you guys for listening to this point uh, and we'll be right back.
And we are back. Uh, we're going to jump into some reader questions. I think this is a segment that Ben and myself want to keep going throughout the podcast. So you guys can kind of get involved. The best place to send us questions is probably on social media, Twitter for myself and for Ben, Instagram for Ben. I think he's a little bit more active on Instagram. Um, I think actually all of our questions today come from your Instagram. So good job carrying the show, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the Instagram followers. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll just go from the top down here. So Blake Relkoff on Instagram asked, what tier do you think J-Rod, Julio Rodriguez, will finish his career on? I'll let you, uh, I'll let you jump on this one first. Yeah. So I mean, I'm we talk- the high man of, of the two of us, at least in terms of our, our votes for the top 100. You said you I are. I, think I might are. be. I think I have to be, right? Yeah, which is kind of wild because yeah, <laughs> I uh, I love Julio Rodriguez. Yeah, I, you know we talked about him a lot more off the field uh, on the last podcast, but this guy is. I mean, he saw him come up with the I think it was the game winning hit I think the other day in in his first spring training game, and this guy I think he just talk about what we look for in hitters. This guy has <laughs> just about all of it. I remember seeing him when he was probably 15, 16 years old, uh, playing in a, a showcase coming out of the Dominican Republic before he signed. And I just, I loved his swing. I just thought it was a, a really good swing, a lot of bat speed, and he would hit the ball a mile, just hitting him into the trees. He, he had a ton of power. At the time, he, like, he, he was a corner outfielders so you got you have to hit a lot to to get a lot of attention which which he did <laughs> we, we ranked him pretty high in a, a really strong 2017 class but there was some kind of up and down game performance just in terms of talking to a lot of scouts who who followed him but this guy can really really hit I think he's proven that so far I think he has a pretty good approach especially for his age he seems to have a pretty good grasp for the strike zone the the swing is still really good the power is probably I don't see how you could go lower than a 70 on his power so so you have a guy who I think is gonna be a really good hitter could could get on base at a, a really strong clip and is a threat to maybe hit 40 home runs. I don't say that a lot, but it's 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 a really good hitter who's who's going to get into that power in games and you know arm is not super important but he has a great arm mm-hmm. and I think he's going to be a pretty good defender for a a corner outfielder too. So you're going to have him chip in some value on that side too. Mm-hmm. So I, I fully project him to be a, a perennial all-star type type of guy. Yeah. I mean, y- you hit it all in the head. I think what really drew me to, to Rodriguez is just like the insane exit velocity numbers, the bat speed, his ability to make adjustments at the plate. Like, reading that kind of feedback on this hitter who's as young as he is and the power projections you have on him, like all of those attributes I love. I love the upside potential. I I thought there was like a top three group of guys on the top 100 
with Wander Franco, Adley Rushman, and J-Rod. And I just kind of ended that tie with Rodriguez's power potential. Like, if he is a prototypical right fielder who is like a plus hitter with 70-grade power, I mean, we're talking about a monster. Um, and I tend to really be attracted to, like, upside tools. And I think he fits that category. But I love the um, the kind of details of how he goes about things offensively with what we have in our reports. Uh, you've probably seen him more than me. Um, but yeah, I'm just really excited about the upside with him. So over Adley Rushman though. Yeah. I, I mean, one is a catcher though, which is a, like, again, like all of these guys, if you told me they were the top prospect in baseball, I, I wouldn't argue with you. It's just like, we got to pick one and like uh, he could get banged up on the plate. Uh, I don't know. But again, Julio does have some injuries on the resume. So maybe that's a concern. You're making me rethink my whole, uh, dilemma that i had doing the top 100 list again ben come on yeah no those are all i think we think all three of those guys have a chance to be yeah. perennial all-star <laughs> maybe mvp type yeah type of guy. I, I love adley i mean i i, I still think wander frank was the best prospect in in baseball i think he's gonna be yeah, I was soundly outvoted by everyone else on staff who had a vote. So yeah, well, he's. I mean, you tell we were talking about what you look for in a hitter. It's like, geez, Wonder Franco. It's, yeah, it's yeah. crazy how how short and compact and fast his bat is, and yeah. his hand-eye coordination is. I don't want to say off the charts because I hate when people say off the charts, and they just mean really <laughs> like top of the charts or really really good. Yeah, or or even just pretty good sometimes they say that but it's it's he just has phenomenal mm -hmm. bat to ball skill it's so hard to strike him out i think mm -hmm. and he has his swing is not really geared for power right now but i think he's gonna learn kind of like jose ramirez which really feels like a lazy comp because they're both dominican guys from bunny and they're like buddies too yeah. like back home. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're boys but it really is that kind of i think he's going to develop into that kind of guy with with maybe some more defensive value to that mm -hmm. I, I mean they have william adamas at at shorts he probably ends up at second base just partly out of circumstance but mm -hmm. i think he's got a chance to really i mean he's got a ton of bat speed again those guys who make a lot of contact just as they mature as hitters and learn okay this this pitch in a 2-0 count where i should be hunting a fastball here i i should let it rip mm -hmm. on this swing and not, and not just try to spread the ball around the field put the ball in play which he's so good at i, I think by the time he gets into his mid-20s you're you're gonna see the power number spike for him and, and he's just i think he could i, I think he has he's, he's kind of viewed as, as a really low floor type guy i don't think there's a ton that's gonna go wrong with him mm -hmm. but I, I think it sounds weird to say for a number one project he probably is more upside i think than than people think once that once that power comes out yeah absolutely uh, the next question we have here is from Kyle Rademacher and apologies if I pronounce anyone's names wrong while reading these well, out. We have uh, your, your podcast co-hosts are two guys from Boston and North Carolina. So <laughs> apologies if we get, get used to some mispronunciations probably. 
Uh, Kyle asks, who are the prospects in the Cardinals organization that you can see shooting into the top 100 in the next three years? So I'll let you take a stab at this first, but I have a couple uh, on my mind that are that are fun and more recent draftees. I think the probably the obvious guy would be Yvonne Herrera, right? The catcher that they've they signed out of uh, Panama a few years ago. Mm-hmm. He's probably not too far from being in in the top 100 right now. It's I, I, again, I, I think he has the the components there in place to to be a good hitter and and to stick behind the plate uh makes a lot of contact seems like a real um smart player we you know we have him again not too far off the uh you know he would be the next cardinal up probably at this point into the into the top 100 he's he's showing some some power signs too that probably haven't shown up quite yet uh, a lot in in games, so I think there's some more untapped power potential, but really uh, pretty compact swing. It sounds like he's he's getting stronger, good good bat to ball skills. Seems like he has enough patience to uh, to take a walk. So uh, he would be kind of the I think the the obvious guy who could who could jump in there. But I I also like their man I I like their draft um, the arms and and then obviously. Mm. Jordan Walker too in, in the yeah, first round. That's the first guy that I was going to touch on just because like he was already a really projectable high school player. He was like a big bodied six foot five, 220 pound uh, third baseman, the top high school third baseman in the class. And I feel like anytime you have a corner high school profile that's going in the first round, like the industry has real confidence in the hit and power to profile. So that's, that's always a good sign for them moving forward. I've heard recently that Walker is looking like an animal physically, like really, really impressive body. Uh, even more so it sounds like he's filling out really well. Um, he had solid field to hit out of high school with plus raw power. I think he's probably going to end up having more than that in the future. I think there's some question about like his natural, like bat to ball skills. Cause he is like a long levered guy that did show some swing and miss. Um, but he moved really well for his size, like as, like a, as a pre-draft guy, um, maybe he has to move to first base eventually, but there have been a few guys in recent years who like, were like iffy third base here. I'm catching myself saying like, so apologies. I think it is me and not you who says like Ben, but, um, no Walker, I, I feel like just the power projection with him is exciting. And the other guy I would touch on from the 2020 draft is Mason Wynn. I love Mason Wynn. It's hard not to like him. He is electric at pretty much everything he does on a baseball field. I think tool, like pound for pound, he might have been one of the most talented players in the 2020 class. He had probably the best two-way Jupiter showing during the fall on the mound and at shortstop. He showed a fastball that got into the upper 90s. He showed a hammer-breaking ball. Then he went out to shortstop and showed impressive athletic actions defensively. The arm played there, and he hit missiles. I think he had four at-bats, and three of them, I believe, had huge exit velocity numbers. He homered a couple times. So he's not the biggest guy, and I have no idea how the shortstop right-handed pitcher two-way experiment goes in pro ball or where they – 
put him and let him kind of figure things out. But in terms of like just toolsy athletic ability and, and upside, he's extremely fascinating to me. Yeah. And game skill too, to go with those tools. Like you said, I mean, it's, I don't know how many tools he has because he's two way guy, right? But it's, it's a lot of pluses. Yeah. It's the, the speed of the, the, the arm is, is outstanding. And just like you said, on, on, you know, at least for high school, for a pretty big stage, he, he, you know, kicked the crap out of some, some, uh, some pretty good players out there and, and made a lot of, a lot of hard contact, drives the ball, some impact for, for not, again, not that big of a dude. <laughs> it's just physically, he's not that big, but, Again, like kind of like we were talking about, I, th- I think we were talking about before. Sometimes I forget if we talked about it on the podcast or if this was just another <laughs> conversation. But if if a guy is, we talk about projection. Well, you don't need to project anything on him as far as future velocity gains because mm-hmm. he's already up to ninety eight miles an hour. He's got an extremely fast arm. Uh, to me, I don't really care so much about size when it comes to to pitchers uh, maybe compared to some other folks it's it's just a, a really good athlete with a really fast arm and feel for a, a slider that could be an out pitch so it's yeah we really don't see legitimate two-way guys like this coming into pro ball so I, I don't know I, I like him as a as a pitcher I like him as a shortstop and if if you're wrong about, or if I'm wrong about one of them, you have a pretty good fallback option. If, yeah. if one That's of them why, doesn't work out. Yeah. I, I'm very curious to see how they use him because most of the two way guys in recent years have been like corner guys or first base and pitcher and the demands of playing shortstop and pitching seem pretty extreme. So I would be, tempted to start him at shortstop and if that doesn't work transition him back to the mound mm-hmm. so you don't miss out on those at bats i feel like that's harder to replicate and catch up if you've missed those ab's than it is to fall back as a pitcher but maybe i'm wrong there i don't know do you have any strong feelings on that or like thoughts on the two-way experiment with him yeah it's it's tough right like you said you want to for a pitcher to then go out to shortstop and make all those throws you that that's tough to manage, mm-hmm. but I'd like to see him try <laughs> again. The, like diversity of playing styles and approaches and and strategies and and seeing new or new ish type things yeah. happening. I just as a as a fan, it's just cool to to see. So um, yeah, pr- it, it's probably easier to start off as a shortstop and get those reps as a hitter and then convert to pitching later on. Cause, cause you know, the arm strength is, is there, that's probably a more common and, and traditional path. We don't really see failed pitchers take up hitting mm-hmm. very, very rarely. It, it usually goes the other way around where you have some position player and an outfielder with a, a great arm or a catcher with a great arm who just can't hit at all. Mm-hmm. And they move into the mound and, Oh, Hey, this guy throws a hundred now. So you, you see that and, and you can pop those guys in the bullpen or whatever, but I, I, I hope he can do the two way thing as, as long as he can. Yep. And Our then, next. I'm oh, no, okay. 
Yeah, no, I was going to say, because just, I mean, talking about arm speed with Mason Wynn, because there's two other guys, one one in the Cardinal system, one will be Edwin Nunez, pitcher of the Cardinals, signed out of the Dominican Republic in, man, 2000, I, I can't keep track of time, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure they signed him in 2020. <laughs> but he's, and it's kind of hard to get real great updated reports on him, but he's been up to 100 miles an hour um six three right-hander believe he's now 19 so no pro experience i'm not gonna say he's a future top 100 guy but definitely <laughs> a guy with a lot of arm speed and i would say the same thing with with tink hence yep right was really I, fast I, arm yeah really fast arm again from another guy who's not that Big. He he has more of a a wiry type build than Mason Wynn with really really long arms, a, a really fast arm, and and really good feel for spinning the ball too. You, you can see. Yeah, it in he the, showed pretty good feel to to throw both a slider and a curveball pre-draft, which is a big one. And he's also really young for the class. So yeah, yeah, all those. All those good projections. I think I saw when I saw him at the Future Star Series at Fenway, the year before his draft. I don't think he was throwing that hard at the time. I'm pretty sure he was maybe tickling the low 90s. Mm-hmm. But it, it just seems like, man, watching this guy, all the projection indicators are there for this guy to throw hard. I think he could throw even even harder once he just add some weight get, gets stronger. yeah get some more calories in him, honestly <laughs> i mean just get yeah get stronger build some more strength through through his legs he's got a lot of room to to fill out it, everything is just pointing this guy throwing hard which which he already has gained the the velocity since that point but i think there's still room to grow and then the 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 breaking ball too i think is another really good indicator for him i think especially in young in in pitchers i i think that feel to throw a breaking ball is is to some degree just an innate quality that you have now again this, the younger you go like if we're looking at kids who are 14 15 uh, it's a little harder to to say at that point but really by by the time a guy is draft eligible i'm i'm looking for especially for a right-handed pitcher I'm looking for for a pitcher who has feel to to spin a breaking ball, not necessarily a refined shape and and all that, but or, or consistent execution of it. But I, I want to see that feel to spin, and and I think he has that. So mm-hmm. just seems like a lot of arrows pointing in in the right direction for for him and for and for Mason Wynn. Yep. Our next question comes from Ayed Ansari uh, again from your Instagram. Are there any Canadian players you have your eyes on? Um, and this was general, so I'm not sure if it's directed to the draft or just to players who are already affili- with affiliated uh, or with teams. Uh, and since it's a Canadian question, I think we should also mention that we now have a Canadian back on board at Baseball America. Uh, today, we actually announced that Alexis Brednicki is joining Baseball America to help cover the draft. She'll be helping out with other prospect things. Uh, but Alexis is a longtime friend of BA, interned a while ago. I'm not sure how long ago BA, uh, Alexis interned, but Team Canada is solidly with Baseball America, which was founded in Canada by a Canadian. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's always exciting to be able to add some of the, some of the top prospect writers around to the, 
to the staff. So really, really excited to have Alexis on board at, at BA. I think a lot of longtime BA readers will will recognize her name and mm-hmm. know her work from from BA and and other places where she's put out stuff on on prospects and 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 big leaguers too. I think she has really good feel for for players and and is a is just a good good writer too so really really excited to have her join in the join the BA team yeah a hundred percent can't wait um but just in terms of the question I think the the Canadian class doesn't seem great this year one of the guys who I would highlight here for the 2021s is Mitchell Bratt a left-hander who's actually moving down to Georgia he's going to be going to Georgia Premier Academy which is the same school that Daniel Espino attended, uh, the Cleveland Indians' first-round pick from a few years ago. He is not similar to Espino in terms of stuff. He's more of a projection left-hander who shows pretty good command, um, probably going to be a guy who needs to show some more velocity. He's a Florida State commit, so it wouldn't be shocking if he didn't show the uptick in velocity this spring and wound up going to Florida State and being a really good pitcher there with solid feel for a breaking ball and a changeup. Um, but we'll keep tabs on him this spring and see if anything changes. Um, and I know there are a couple of pro guys who were recently drafted out of Canada. Ben, I think David Calabrese is really your type of player in a lot of ways. Uh, and Owen Casey would be the other one in terms of recently drafted Canadian prospects. Do you have any thoughts on them? Yeah, I, I do like David Calabrese quite a bit. He, <clears throat> yeah, he's, he's young for the class. Angels drafted him last year not not a real big physical guy but he can play center field I don't really have any questions about that he's a mm-hmm. he's a 70 runner I think he was under I think it was like six four and change that he ran when I yeah. saw the six the, four seven yeah star series yeah yeah so he he ran real well not a great arm but uh yeah it's not super important to me especially in in center field, it's more of a it's a nice to have thing. It's nice if you can throw like Jackie Bradley Jr., but you can you can be a good center fielder without a a great arm. It's more about the the range, I think, and, and the mm-hmm. ground you can cover out there. And he has a lot of speed and and seems like pretty good instincts out there too. From uh from from when I saw him and and really young for the for the high school class too. Drafted, I, I believe, at seventeen years old and. From the left he was side, one of the younger players in the entire class. We've talked about a couple of the youngest players in, in last year's class here. Yeah, which which makes a difference. It's mm-hmm. you know, those guys who are especially for the hitters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking yeah yeah a year or a year plus difference for for some of these guys. So I mean, you put him in the you could easily put him just on age into the 2021 draft mm-hmm. this year. But uh, I think it's he's got a chance to make a lot of contact from from the left side. Uh, don't know just physically if if he's ever going to hit for for a lot of power, but again, he's 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 so young. It's it's hard to peg him in there. But I I, I wouldn't. It's it's not something I, I expect for him. But even if he's not a, a big power guy, I think he's got a chance to play a, a premium position and, and be a, a table setter type of type of hitter. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that pick for for the Angels. Is it yeah. is it going to be tough this year for? I mean, with, with all the challenges of, of the pandemic and, and scouting players and seeing players, and, and, and like you said, it, it, one of the top players in, in Canada is, is going to Georgia Premier Academy now, so he's moving to 
you know, out of the, the country to, to get more exposure. It, it's got to be, I would think, more challenging for scouts to to follow some of these Canadian players this year, just border travel stuff. I don't know how that's going to play out for some of these players or, or for the scouts you have to keep Yeah, I think the guys. teams that, are, uh, that have follows and – and have done a good job with history on players and maybe communicate with, with different scouts uh, across different areas and kind of keep each other filled in. So guys know what to expect going in to see a player that maybe they don't personally have history with, but as an organization, maybe you do have a little bit of history with, but the Canadians always seem tough in that regard because they go down to Florida uh, with the Canadian national team in normal years. Mm -hmm. uh, and really that's where Owen Casey and Calabrese impressed uh and Casey is more of a kind of a power projection corner outfield profile with a big frame he showed plus raw power so those two are both interesting for for different ways for different reasons um but yeah, yeah. I, I know some guys too in the even like in the northeast have just been talking about like are we going to have a high school baseball season this year? Should we exactly. go down to... I think that is why a lot of the guys are going down, just to make sure they can get their reps in and develop and get seen. There probably is a concern, so there's added incentive to to move down somewhere to one of these schools where you can transfer in and, and play better competition than... Well, again, the Canadian guys typically play pro teams, so that's pretty good competition. Um, but yeah, just getting to an area where you're going to get seen and be able to play um but yeah those are probably the the biggest canadians that come to mind next question we have here is from stanton on twitter he asks how does christian pache how soon does christian pache win his first gold glove uh i wouldn't be surprised if it was exceptionally quickly like basically if he can play a full season as soon as he's a regular and playing a full season at the big league level i would imagine he's immediately in the uh, the contention to, to win that award. We think he's going to be an 80 grade defender. He is an exceptional runner. He has exceptional instincts. I know JJ has talked a lot that he's like one of the best defensive prospects that uh, he's seen since Andrew Jones. I mean, this guy is, has been one of the better defensive prospects in the minors for a long time now. And I think as long as he's getting, the regular at bats, there's no reason why he couldn't win it as soon as he was regular. That's my opinion. I don't know if that's too aggressive from me, but what do you think, Ben? I think on, on talent, he, he, he should be up there. I mean, it's tough when you see like the, <laughs> some pretty good center fielders out there, pretty good defensive center fielders who just don't win gold gloves. Um, <laughs> Yeah. There's there's a lot of competition. It also kind of depends on how they do the gold glove voting, right? Like, is it going to be based on your your defensive metrics that they put out? Is, is it going to be more uh, based on based on other more traditional criteria they usually do? But you know, I just think of a guy Lorenzo Kane who has won gold glove <laughs> he won what uh two years ago and this guy i, I mean he, he has to be one of the best defensive center fielders of of the past 10 years there's i don't think there's much question about that elite impact defender mm -hmm. and what, what, whether you're going by the 
defensive metrics, looking at the defensive run saved, or just watching him, scouting him. So it's hard to hard to guarantee or or just assume even a, even a really really good defender will win a Gold Glove. Mm-hmm. But I I think yeah, as long as he hits enough to be playing on an everyday basis, I think right away he'll be in that mix for for the best defensive center fielders in the league. Yep, absolutely. I think we probably got one more that we can hit here. This is from Matt Spangler on Instagram. How do you think Cubs shortstop Reginald Preciado will be and what position will he end up at? So Matt, I'm going to, or Ben, excuse me, I'm going to direct Matt's question to you. I think you are probably the, uh, the right guy to answer this one. Yeah. Preciado, Reggie Preciado. He's the big 2019 or one of the big 2019 international signings that the Padres had, and they shipped him off in the um, in the Darvish deal to the Cubs. The, the Cubs got a lot of lower-level type players in in that trade, and I like yeah, I like Reggie Preciado. He's really really unusual player. He's from he's from Panama. Has a really good track record of of hitting in games as as an amateur for. Uh, kind of an unorthodox looking player. He, he's a shortstop. He's uh, he was six four. Uh, he might be even taller than than that now. I think so. Just a really tall, uh, lanky young player. Who, um, yeah, we have him up to six foot five now. He's I think still <laughs> seventeen, turning eighteen years old later this year. No, no official professional experience. I saw him play last year, or I should say in 2019, after he signed in, in some tricky league games, which is this unofficial league for, for July 2nd players who would just sign but can't officially play in Dominican summer league games. And for such a you, – you look at somebody who's that tall and lanky and really long arms, and it's not the – prettiest swing by any means but he he seems to have a knack for being on time and and putting the bat to the ball now he came over for instructional league this year and I think we saw some more swing and miss out of him there but again keep in mind context of this is a player who signed at 16 is, is still 17 years old and just had his first pro season wiped out (laughs) i i think basically every 2019 international signing who who did come over to the u.s for instructional league just got understandably overmatched these guys haven't for the most part been playing in games and they're younger than everybody there they're in a new country for the first time everything is totally and I guess literally foreign to them it's just this out of body experience a lot of times for for these players so it's I mean think about I don't know think about your first semester as a freshman at college Carlos like I I don't know about you but that was not my greatest oh man semester why we got to end the podcast with these negative thoughts, <laughs> this negative energy? But, thing. Come on. Well, no, my my point is just, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of it, it's kind of like that, except you're in a new country where a lot of these kids don't even. Speak where you're the still language. learning the language. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of 
a lot of things just off the field that you're getting used to, even just the pro. Yeah, you're, you're handling a bunch of different things from so many different angles at the same time and trying to balance that. Yeah, and oh, here's uh, here's Reed Detmers that you have to hit against too, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a most with with very few exceptions. I guess Jefferson Caro maybe would be one exception. A, a catcher, the Brewer signed out of Venezuela. He he hit really well, but for the most part, you don't expect <laughs> these players to go out and and perform in in that setting, especially having having missed that year. But in general, yeah, I, I think he's got a for such a tall, long kid, I, I think he has a chance to to hit from from both sides. It, it, some of his future probably depends on his physical development. You wouldn't expect somebody who's six five to to stay at shortstop, but mm. I don't know. A lot of people didn't think Corey Seager would stay at shortstop, and he's there. And I don't think Preciado is uh, he's not like a super explosive type guy, but he has a, a knack for slowing the game down. Uh, I think that shows up both at the plate and at at shortstop. I think is a, a good internal clock. He has a a strong arm, and, and you look at his the way he's built. I, I think is there's room to project on his arm, bumping up a grade too. Once once he gets stronger, so I, I think there's a lot of components to like. He's just a really unusual player, mm-hmm. but I think there's there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of attributes there to to like he was I, I liked him a lot from that uh um that 2019 signing class yeah so matt hope you got your answer there and uh hope everyone got their their answers um i think those are all the ones you want to hit is there any other that i missed ben that you want to touch on uh we got a question too from uh Marcus Zappia on on Instagram is is Oscar Colas more likely to sign in 2022 or find someone to pay him this year. So yeah, Oscar Colas is Cuban outfielder slash kind of left-handed pitcher. He has some pitching experience. I think clubs that are looking at him are, are really looking at him as a an outfielder, a power hitting, power hitting guy. You're, you're really banking on the, the power with him. He, you know, it, it technically could sign now in this, what, what is the 2020 slash 21 class? He's that, that started on, on January 15th. The problem is he, I'm sure wants uh, a lot of money and most teams have spent the majority, if if not all of their mm-hmm. bonus pool space at, uh, at this point since, since January 15th. So realistically, I, I don't see much of a, much of a path for him signing during the, the current signing period. I think all, all indications are he's going to wait to sign. He, recently had to, a showcase so he's he's still out there to to my knowledge looking for for something but i think more than likely we we see him wait to signing until the next signing period in in the class that we where we just posted our our updated international board so that group with the Roderick Arias and and that group of uh group of players so um i think we'll probably be waiting for him to uh, a little bit to sign. Okay. Well, I think that is the last one. Again, I don't think I'm missing any others, but 
We have been at it for, I think, about three hours now. Really run the gamut on a lot of fun topics. Has it really been three hours? I think I think so, almost. We're, wow. we're almost at three hours. I thought we were at like under two. That's <laughs> time, <wild. laughs> time flies when you're having fun, Ben. I guess um, so. But no, thank you guys for listening. Um, if you've made it this far, congratulations. Um, it's, it's really fun to do these. And again, I can't thank you guys enough for the feedback that we've gotten on the first episode. If you're new or you haven't um, jumped in and given us a review on iTunes or Apple Music or wherever you get your podcast, that is still very helpful for us, even though I guess we're technically an established podcast now that it's not the first episode. That would be very helpful. Um, we will be back next week to talk about a whole slew of other topics. Uh, ben, is there anything else you want to touch on before we jump off? Anything you want to plug that you're working on moving forward or anything you want to direct listeners to on the website? Anything like that? Just like you said, yeah, we, we really appreciate all the kind feedback we got from all you guys who've been listening, people in the game, front offices, scouts, readers, everybody who's, who's uh, said some real, real nice things. So we didn't, uh, I, I, I thought people would, would like the podcast, but I, I was, I was really heartened to see the, the response that we got from, from a lot of folks. And, and like Carlos said, when you leave a, a rating and a, a review, we'll, we'll, we'll read them, we'll check them out. And it definitely helps us give the, the podcast some momentum and whatever algorithms that are <laughs> going and, and, uh, helping juice the podcast up the up the charts to some you know to get a, a broader reach to some more folks we really really appreciate all you guys for uh for listening and and all the uh all the really kind feedback so far yeah so thank you guys again uh for ben i am carlos Colazo. until next time so long everybody sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.